Hello, and welcome to Scuttlebutt, the war movie review podcast. We're happy to have you with us as we take a look at films from the dawn of cinema to today. We aim to provide a raw and unapologetic review of each film's cinematography, historical accuracy, and delivery. In the process of analysis, certain details will be revealed. These spoilers are only divulged to ensure a fair assessment of each film. We storm across the channel this week with Ken Anakin's 1962 epic, The Longest Day. As always, I'm joined by Mike A. Hello, hello. Nate. What's up? And a special guest this week, author and military historian Steve Zagola. How you doing? So, guys, what do you think? Ooh, well, this is, this is, I guess this one's been a long time coming, right? Like, this is one of the big ones. We usually do a lot of obscure ones, but this is one of the big ones. Well, you know, we wanted to talk about D-Day in Omaha for a while, and the whole picture, and this is really the best thing that paints a, a wide, you know, net. You know, you get really everything that happened on D-Day, or at least a, a depiction of everything that happened on D-Day, unlike Saving Private Ryan or Band of Brothers or things in the past. So it's really nice to start with this as like a kind of a primer to, you know, Overlord and everything. And uh, it's been a while since I watched this film. And first off, I didn't realize how long it was. I thought it was like two hours, 30 minutes. That, that extra 30 minutes really, uh, it hurts. And how much they pushed into this. I mean, I read the book, The Longest Day, a long time ago, and I loved it. I mean, you know, um, Cornelius Ryan is such an amazing author. And uh, he did such a good job with his research, you know, in the 50s and 60s, um, or at least at the time, as far as I know. And uh, they really just crammed, like, every single paragraph from that book into the movie. And it was very interesting to see, you know, these 60s epics where they just take everything they can and just, okay, here's three hours in an intermission. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, well, I, I think uh, I think this movie is kind of like, you know, it, 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 it kick-started a lot of the the D-Day fascination, I would say. Um, and uh, Steve, I mean, you're you've done tons of books on D-Day and stuff like that. And uh, very, all the kind of research was, do you, was this movie for you kind of like, cause you said you saw this when you were a kid. Was this movie like one that kickstarted your interest in this subject? Um, actually not really. Uh, what got me interested in D-Day was, uh, both my grandfather and my dad landed on Omaha beach. My, uh, my grandfather landed on Omaha beach on D-Day in an, in an U S army engineer unit. And then my dad landed a, a week or so after uh, D-Day, but also on Omaha Beach. So I had heard a lot of Omaha Beach stories since I was a kid. And so when the movie came out, my dad obviously wanted to go see it. I, it came out in 1962, so I was 10 years old at the time. So I went to the movies with my dad to see it. And um, he enjoyed it. Um, you know, he wasn't there that day, but he was at Omaha Beach. Uh, and as I say, my grandfather was there on D-Day. So, you know, there was some family memory of the event. So um, it certainly helped push along my interest in D-Day. I wouldn't say, though, that it was the the starting cause of it. Um, I had other reasons to be interested. Right. Um, I, I know for a lot of people, they, they always, I, I don't know, for me, it was like Saving Private Ryan for like, it seems like the other generations, it was kind of this film. But uh, also, like you say, people whose you know family served in, in World War II and uh, in D Day. But uh, I think uh, just right off the, off the right off the bat, I think it's you know it's pretty damn good for its time. You know, I I think it's actually uh, it's pretty solid, honestly. If you were if I was gonna just give it something right off the bat, I think that uh, 
there's a lot of stuff you could break it down and say, yeah, this is wrong, this is wrong, or this is, you have a problem with this. But, uh, you know, for other war movies of the time, I think it's far superior than a lot of them. Yeah, I, th- I think it's one of the better ones. I mean, it's of a particular style that was common starting in the 60s. I mean, you had these great international epics where they would bring in famous German actors and famous British actors and American actors. So you had his Paris Burning and Longest Day, and then later on you had Bridge Too Far, you know, based on another Cornelius Ryan book. Um, those type of epics were very popular in the 60s and 70s. You don't see them anymore. I mean, when you stop to think about it, since when has there been a big military uh, epic like that? They tend to be more narrowly focused, like Saving Private Ryan, um, or like the TV epics like um, Band of Brothers or, or The Pacific. Right. Yeah, there's nothing really on that scale. I'd say The Forgotten Battle maybe tries to attempt to do that, talk about the Zealands, but they really don't encompass as much as, you know, one of these these 60s films. And I'd even put like uh, Lawrence of Arabia or Dr. Zhivago in those categories of those, you know, big 60s epics and stuff. But Nate, you've been quiet. What do you think? Um, well, uh, uh, first time seeing this movie actually ever. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. I, I will. I mean, I've kind of stayed o- 60 years. Too yeah. Late. I mean, I, I kind of stayed away from it um, over the years. I mean, not, not, not in a like particular reason. It's like, Oh, it's that movie that everyone, has told me to watch for years. So it's like, oh, I better be in the right mindset to sit down and watch a 1960s movie. So it was a lot of that kind of feeling. And so I, I kind of was like always kind of staying away from it, not because I didn't want to see it, but just because I knew I had to be in the right mindset and I never was. And so this came down the, the ticket list and I was like, all right, well, I better be in the right mindset. And um, it is definitely 1960s. Um, and it's very interesting. It was very, also very interesting to see a lot of World War, um, a lot of Hollywood actors from smaller World War II movies being all up in in this film as well. Um, there was a uh, there was a few that I can't really particularly point out, but uh, and I can't even remember his name. But the I think it was the Colonel who was tied to the 29th, um, who gets like I think blown up by a grenade near the end. Um, um Eddie Albert. Yeah, is that yeah. who that is? Okay. He I, I think he's supposed to be Canham, but his name is like Taylor in the movie. So I think he's Okay. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I don't think he's a, an actual character. No, he's But I think he's there, based on There's a number of people like Coda. On... Yeah, Coda is depicted by um Robert Mitchum. By Mitchum, yeah. but uh Mitchum. the the yeah, but uh the Eddie Albert character I think was just thrown in there for uh general purpose non nondescript right. officer. He well he he was in a, a another movie that I I really like from like it's like one of my it's it's very cheesy cliche very Hollywood 1950s movie but uh attack I really like that oh, yeah. movie and and so he's in there as the the captain who's like you know half baby half captain you know like whatever it is and I think yeah. Well I, I remember him though more from uh, what was the TV series Golden Acres where he played oh, opposite yeah. uh Jaja Gabor's sister, you know, yeah. um, so that's that's how I remember him because you know growing up at that time he was he was better known as a TV actor than for his movie roles. Speaking speaking of other actors in the in this thing as well, did you guys notice that uh, uh, is it Goldmember? No, not Goldmember. That's that's fuck. That's Austin Powers. Oh, um, the uh, 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 the guy. Uh, 
you just went on a James Bond spree. The German villain from yes, 007. Yeah, yeah but from, he's uh, the guy. Spe- he steals yeah. all the all the gold from the vault or from from Fort Knox. Goldfinger. Gold Thank you. I, well, I said gold member because yes. that's what Austin Powers made fun of it for. So I said gold member. <laughs> Goldfinger. But he's he's the sergeant delivering coffee in the beginning on the horse. That's him. So I I, re- yeah, I, yeah, I spent yeah. like mm-hmm. I spent like five like ten minutes going why do I know him and then it hit me like a ton of bricks like halfway <laughs> through the film I'm like oh right it's Goldfinger he was in a number of things where he was a villain mm-hmm. back in the sixties I think he was uh, I think he was in one of the Planet of the Apes movies or something but uh, yeah I, I recognize that guy too I was like oh that dude <laughs> yeah um, just just a fun fact for Goldfinger they actually had to re um, voice him for that movie because he sounded so bad. <laughs> Like they had a Scottish guy with a German accent revoicing really? for that, so that's not his real accent in Goldfinger. Yeah, if you listen to the original it's recordings, it's ADR. like they made the right decision. Really? Yes, the whole thing. Yeah, it's he was really bad. <laughs> he, he just couldn't deliver the lines. Yeah. He looked good. So, but yeah, he was a big actor at the time, and it's funny to see where these guys' career started. There are tons of uh, big actors in this that are just like kind of there for a second. You know, or, or, or famous yeah. people at the time, like uh, Paul Anka makes a, an appearance. You know, it's, it's yeah. one of the Rangers. There's a bu- bunch of movie, a bunch, a bunch of movie people as well as singers. You know, mm-hmm. if you look at the Rangers scene, there's a couple of uh, popular singers there, and there's a couple of at the time little-known actors. Uh, George Segal, who um, later was in Bridget Ormogan, he's among the Rangers in the Point to Hawk scene. Robert Vaughn, who later shows up in all sorts of TV shows. He's one of the young Rangers. There's just tons of uh, tons of actors who show up in the movie. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah, you know, it's it's a it's a good movie. Um, it's something that I would probably love to see, you know, redone if it was if if you could do an epic today about this. I uh, because obviously it is like you say it's it's good, but you know it is of its time, and uh, there's a lot of stuff in it that is very of its time. Like the the special effects are terrible. <laughs> oh, okay. They're simply awful. So, ah! so, so I want to ask: Did anyone notice Rommel disappearing? Uh, no, was that at the beginning? Yes, he okay. disappears okay. in the green screen, and then he comes back. <laughs> there were some horrible green screen, the, like be, during the the, the LCVPs. The, and well, speed, the well, yeah. the no, yeah, the really bad one was him on top of the on top of the gun bunker at the very beginning before it's his longest day. Mm-hmm. You can literally see the outline around him uh, from the gre- from the green from the 1960s like green screen, and he disappears and then comes back. And I thought I was watching a bootleg <laughs> copy. It was so bad. Like I thought someone like from the internet like put themselves in and was making a joke. No, it's legit. <laughs> All right, I have it pulled up right now. I'm watching it. Oh my yeah. god. Yeah. Can Jesus you- Christ. Um, and what was surprising is that, that that scene that scene didn't need to be so bad. I mean, it's not that difficult to film those characters against an ocean background. I think that was just done for economy reasons. You can see doing green screens with certain things, but just having a bunch of people standing in front of the ocean, yeah, uh, that yeah. couldn't have been that difficult to they do. They only had a handful of actors to actually go to Normandy, and the guy who played Rommel wasn't one of them. <laughs> yeah because yeah. it because it made it that's that's it was funny because i was like why is that like that it's like well maybe they just maybe the footage disappeared maybe the footage was destroyed maybe something happened on the day maybe the wind was too bad and they couldn't do what they needed to do so they stuck them in a studio with fans because that's what that is i think yeah. i think it's called it, it, well, well that too <laughs> at some, yeah, yeah, at some yeah, point yeah. They were, there, there are some yeah. scenes that were quite expensive when you see some of the scenes that were filmed on I don't think it was the actual beaches, but it was filmed somewhere on the French coast. That was really expensive when you have thousands of, you know, French army extras 
yeah. running across the beach. And you have all sorts of vehicles and ships. And, um, and then some of it was shot down in Spain, which is the reason that you get this strange appearance on D-Day where everything's bright and sunny. Yeah, the Omaha Beach was in Spain. I knew that, yeah. yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Point to Hawk was actually at Point to Hawk. Um, and talking about the sp- special crazy. effects, they <laughs> blow the shit out of it. Um, <laughs> the real point yeah you see chunks of cliff falling <laughs> yeah, it's uh. like, and also the funny thing about that is is that the actual point to hawk memorial was there at the time so if you look closely they just put a black tarp over it so there's this big black tent <laughs> on top of uh point to hawk for some reason so uh i mean but um, i mean it's probably the reason funny. why it all fell into the sea so uh <laughs> maybe yeah it just just recently it, part of it collapsed um but uh, and I I know I, I know some other play like uh, they they really utilize um, Longus sur Mer uh, for a number of scenes for uh, the Pluscat scenes. Um, so and again they blow the shit out of that thing and uh, with their fake explosives. So yeah, using a number of actual locations in this uh, very interesting. But yeah, I did know that there were some a lot of the beach scenes were actually in Spain, um, which is why I say like I would love to see a remake of this because. You know, all of this stuff is back then it was kind of no one really knew about, you know, it wasn't documented nearly as well as it has been today by people like you, Steve. So, uh, yeah, this is something to where it's like, I'd love to see this be remade. I think that one of the advantages they had, though, is that it was close enough to World War Two that getting equipment mm-hmm. and ships mm-hmm. that were, you know, not entirely accurate, but at least, you know, plausible. Because if you go back and you look at the... Um, you know, like the naval scenes that they shot off of Spain. They they had permission from NATO to um, use a number of uh, NATO warships uh, to film that the Omaha Beach scene. And so, you know, the, the landing craft aren't really World War II landing craft, but they're close enough to be plausible. And the uniforms are not really D-Day uniforms, but they're close enough to be plausible. Yeah, they're M-43s. Um, and then when they do Sword Beach and they have the Shermans that they got from the French Army, well, they're not the type that were used on... Normandy in June 1944, but you know, once again, they're plausible. So hard, hard to do that these days. That kind of equipment is pretty rare. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. I, I did notice that a lot of the LCVPs are marked uh, um, uh, PA44, which means they come from the USS Fremont, which is a boat that served in the Pacific. So that that's just. I wonder if those were like original boats from. World War II that had never been altered or something, and like they had those at their disposal. No, the, I think those are those are. I think they're post-war LCVPs. I have to go back and look. I, I don't remember it in as much detail. I remember when looking at it, it, there's all sorts of problems with the landing scenes. To begin with the initial waves landed on LCAs, not with LCVPs, um, and then you know when they show the LCVPs, they they hardly show up, and then all of a sudden you've got LCMs which are much larger and they weren't used in the initial waves except by the engineers. And then later on in the scene, you know, there's a continuity problem where they switch from LCMs to LCTs, which are much larger. So they obviously had some limited access to landing craft when they were filming down in Spain. And it kind of shows. I mean, you've got to be sort of a D-Day geek to pick that kind of stuff up. But um, there, there's, uh, there's issues there as far as, you know, the type of landing craft they use. I did see one LCA in the Point to Hawk scenes, and I was very surprised. I did notice that. that too. Yeah, so it's on the beach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and just to so people uh, that don't know, uh, the LCA was a British landing craft, and they were, had a very low draft. And on the morning of the sixth, with all the storms and everything, a lot of them flooded, 
and there's tons of stories of guys bailing out with helmets and they were not very well made for for that kind of surf uh, a lot of uh, sick and stuff a lot of uh, <laughs> the rangers you know in 29ers uh came ashore in uh lcas rather than the you know traditional higgins boat which is what everyone thinks but uh so that's um that's one thing yeah the first the first waves the first waves all came ashore in lcas yeah so the rangers at point to hawk and all the first waves on all the other beaches it was because they were a little bit better armored than the um the lcvps the the higgins boats um so they they tended to use LCAs, um, but it depended on the on the beach. Um, some on some of the beaches LCMs were used right at the outset, but they were they had specialized uses. They were mostly used for carrying in engineer demolition teams. An issue too, you don't see any DD tanks or any mention of them until you get to the casino yeah, scene. Yeah, exactly. You know where one rolls up and it's the post war. Yeah, and isn't uh, it an, still need to see though a skirt on a Sherman? Isn't it an Easy know? Eight that pulls up? Mm-hmm. Or what, what was that? Well, no, it's it's the right chassis. It's it's the 76 they're the seventy six millimeter ones. They're M four A one seventy six millimeter, which the yeah. French Army had a ton of, and that's why you see them. But they actually went to some effort to make them look like D days. They put a they put a fake uh, flotation screen around them. So you got to give them credit. I mean, you know, most filmmakers would have just uh, shown ordinary Shermans, not even bothered. But the uh, the filmmakers tried to dummy up the uh, the later style like a dd tank so that's why i say like for the time like you can tell they really they they did care about what they were doing they did put a lot of thought into it at the time um but like i say there are a lot of things that are you know very of its time like the uh you know the french resistance bombshell in the movie um she uh she has like her 60s bouffant hair (laughs) you know and everything and her low-cut uh 60s outfit and all that and you ever look up pictures of the actual lady she's based on you know it's completely not how she looked <laughs> but uh so there's just some stuff like that it's the same with some of the major characters like they have john wayne playing a guy who was probably 20 years younger than uh, than he was but they had to get in you know one of the big action heroes so you know they hired him for one of the major roles yeah benjamin vandervoort who he plays was 28 on d-day and uh i think they wanted charlton heston originally for uh for vandervoort but uh yeah, stuff like that. And then James Gavin is played by, like, a 60-year-old man, and, like, he would have been 30 or something, you know. <laughs> yeah, he was in his yeah. mid-30s at the time. Yeah. Yeah. The youngest general, and played by the oldest actor. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was interesting. Um, but just to bring it a little back, bit back, I love the beginning of this film. Because, you know, how do you set the stage for D-Day and everything? And I love, you know, how they have the theme play into it, and you just see so much without saying a lot. And I think that's the best way they can really set the stage for Omaha, you know, and it just really plays into it with all the aspects of what they're trying to cover with the film. I feel like they did a good job of telling a story, but not a good job of like cinematography and stuff because it was very just, you know, telling and not showing just because they had to move the story along. And they had so many like little plot lines of characters. I mean, they covered everything from French commandos to war correspondents to beach masters to paratroopers to French. I mean, there's the myriad of, of things they cover in this film in three hours. It's really incredible. And it's crazy. But to touch on the whole casino scene and stuff, I feel like that was the best shot. I was about to say, I, that, I was thinking I that too that. when I was, I was like the, the Osterham uh, scene is the yep. best scene in the movie. Yeah. I love everything about except for like when it shows the inside the case mate, and you see like, Zeke Heil, like with swastikas carved into it. Sixties, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Some production uh, designer thought, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, 
get all crazy with this, but uh, it should have been an outline of the town. That would have been way right. Cool. Yeah, yeah. It should have been a you schematic know, or something. Yeah, um, or range cards. I, I, th- I think that was a. I think that was a payoff to the French government. Um, that that whole scene because the French commandos were probably the the least significant of all of the Allied contingents. Um, because basically, at the time, as far as the U.S. I didn't trust the French very much, and De Gaulle, for example, wasn't informed about D-Day until. You know, I think literally the day of. I think the only the only French who knew about it were the French commandos. Um, but I think that what happened is that the French government uh, cooperated to such a great extent with the making of the movie that there was um, you know some kind of quid pro quo. Okay, well we're going to help you with this. Yeah, okay, you're going to show the French resistance, but we want to show you know the Free French Army also. Because the people who are not shown, you'll notice, are the Canadians. Yeah, we just kind of glide over. Oh, that's uh, a good point. We kind of glide yeah, there's, over there's Juno. No Juno Beach. Yeah, yeah. We, we they just use that scene for um, for uh, uh, Pip's Prillers uh, uh, part in the movie. Um, but uh, you know, that's, I never thought about that. But yeah, that is like the real. That scene is like the you know the because we see the Canadians like really suffering during that you know and how like their hardships and the nuns coming and helping it which I think is great is you know from a cinematic perspective but like the fact that you point that out like that makes sense to me now <laughs> yep gotta pay somebody off yeah <laughs> but and there's so many cool GI things in this too like the crap game games having everywhere and stuff like you you read a lot of memoirs and they'll always talk about the notorious bathroom ship like a troop ship crap game mm-hmm. because the lights never went off in the bathroom so you can gamble until you got there you know and it was just cool to see those little things put into it and they're the little nods to earlier service like you know the little bit about the guy who was from the battle of britain you know and it's like a few of these guys have been in this game for a long well, time uh, it's you know and it's, it's, it's funny <clears throat> um that's i think that part though that aspect is my favorite part about the movies that you're talking about the richard burton character right Yes. Yeah. Richard Burton. Yeah. He's this pilot who's been in, you know, since the war started and we get the scene at the beginning with him and then we never really see him again. But then like after that, we cut to this 82nd Airborne paratrooper who is fresh. You know, this is obviously his first time doing this and all this stuff. And um, and then at the at very end of the movie, they have a scene together. And I love that scene. That is a great scene. The two of them where they, they merge together and they have this great dialogue about the whole, basically everything that's been going on. And um, I love the how they ended the movie on that note. I know it's not a, really the last scene. The last scene is Robert Mitchum getting in his Jeep. But um, I kind of wish they would have just ro- rolled credits right after that, right after he says, I wonder who won. And I think that's, yeah. th- those are actually two characters who I don't think are in the Cornelius Ryan book. I could be mistaken. But I think... I think that scene was invented for the movie. Yeah, probably. I could be totally wrong about that, that yeah. but uh... I think I think the the paratrooper. I forgot his name. Um, I think he is mentioned in the book. Uh, I forgot, but I remember them saying in the book that he had his head, his hair cut into a mohawk. Um, but uh, oh, one of the dirty dozen, or he was eighty second airborne dozen, though. But, uh, so filthy thirteen. I, I don't know. I don't. Know. I've always heard mixed things on that whole mohawk thing. If like, because it seems like something that they say. Oh yeah, that's what par- all paratroopers did, and then. It's like, I think only a handful of people did that. It, it was the Filthy 13, I think, the engineer guys. Right. And there was a photographer there. So he's like, oh, look, he took the photos. And obviously, you know, those are the photos they get out. It's like, you know, with everything else. If a German, you know, photographer is looking at a line of soldiers and they all can't eat. And one guy is a STG. He takes a photo of him 80 years later. Oh, they all have STGs. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's just uh, you always take the photo of the um, not the rule, you know, the, the exception. Right. So. 
what will look good back home. Mm-hmm. So, I apologize. I'm, I'm, I, I apologize. I'm eating. <laughs> I, I haven't had dinner yet, so <laughs> shove. And the, oh. the delivery was way too late, so I'm shoving it in my mouth quietly. So I apologize. Well, thank you for not chewing into the microphone because that would have. I am considerate insane. with my rudeness, so yeah. yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> But um, the French Resistance scenes, I think, are great. You know, Jean has a long mustache. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the travel agency is on fire. And, again, that also might be a, a big nod to the French government and things. But it was – it's neat to see that, you know, and, and everything. The airmen in the basement, you know, the wine cellar, maybe that's a little much. You know, I don't think they all hung out 24-7 singing Kumbaya <laughs> around the BBC radio. But uh, it still was, was neat to see. A lot of that code word stuff, though, was correct. You know, the business about – you know the radio broadcast coming out of London with code words to activate the uh, the various French groups, and uh, you know they wanted they wanted to play that up. That's you know this is sort of at the tail end or just a few years after the French leave NATO, and I think that you know when they were first designing this, they were trying to play cute with the uh, French side. You know, oh, we're all buddies in NATO, but by the time the film comes out, uh, De Gaulle had pulled France out of the NATO structure. So I, I suspect that some of this would have been played down a bit um, had the film mm. been done a few years later. Would have had a True. completely different attitude. Uh, Make the Spanish look a lot nicer. <laughs> <laughs> well, Spain Spain wasn't in NATO at that stage, but um, there mm-hmm. was you know there was more there was more cooperation. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that's great about this too is that you know you have so many men, hundreds of thousands of men, and just the, the sporadic conversations you have. Like the one guy's talking about, like, oh, and she's such a great dame, and he walks away. It's like, oh, what are you talking about? And what's his name? I have never seen that guy in my life. <laughs> you know, and, and just this troop ship stuff. You know, it's just so many guys in one area, you, you're going to have that. Yeah. And uh, I forgot that that guy uh, turns out to be the guy who, uh, you know, uh, hooks up the Bangalores at the end. For, <laughs> I forgot that that's a, that, how that guy came back. Um, you know, it was funny when I saw the Bangalore scene again, it made me realize how much is stolen or influenced in films. Yeah. Because I immediately thought about SPR and then about the Big Red One. And it's like, you know, this film is really the first, you know, big D-Day film. And it puts a lot of emphasis in that one scene on Bangalore's. And it's just, I really feel like that influenced, you know, these two other films. Yes, Bangalore's are very important to the invasion and everything. You know, they were key to getting over the obstacles. But, you know, I really feel like this is the the beginning of that, you know, the Wilhelm screen, let's say, of Bangalore's and and D-Day films. Because it's like, it's such an emphasis. And I hate how they do it in the Big Red One while we're on it. <laughs> that, that's that's because uh, Coda, in the um, interviews he had with uh, Cornelius Ryan, made a big deal about the Bangalores. Because um, mm-hmm. I've gone through the Cornelius Ryan papers out at Ohio University, so I have a lot of the um, the interviews that Ryan had, you know, in preparing his book. And Coda, mm-hmm. when he was talking about that whole scene, um, he he mentioned the Bangalores in in quite a bit of detail. He mentioned that as kind of the one of the critical um, events in getting off the beach. In fact, the thing that surprised me about the the pacing of that scene of uh, Coda on the beach and everything is that was really far more prolonged than it needed to be because um, Coda was there fairly early in the morning and they got through the barbed wire down at the base of the uh, hills um, relatively early. The problem is, is that they try to compress everything and they kind of compressed the Bangalore torpedoes getting through the barbed wire, then the troops going up the hill, with the blowing of that anti-tank wall yes. um, that's over at Vierville. Um, and so, you know, if you're into that whole 29th 
infantry division sector, a lot of that doesn't make any sense at all. And of course, the film itself, the background detail doesn't make any sense either. The What you see physically doesn't look very much like the actual scenes or the actual um, topography. So if you really know that area, it, it really doesn't make much visual sense. Although quite honestly, Saving Private Ryan has equally serious problems yeah. where they just jam the hell out of the, the Veerville draw with bunkers and all sorts of stuff. So, you know, they go from one extreme to the other. So, so while we're on the subject, um, you know, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but Steve has alluded to it. He's written many books on the subject of Omaha and D-Day and everything. And Michael has spent years researching out everything about this. So, guys, you know, in reality, what did Omaha Beach look like with its defenses compared to the Hollywood depictions of it for the last 60 years? Much bigger. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's four it's four or five miles across, but the the other thing that the movies do is that they compress it quite a bit. So, you know, when you do see the uh, the uh, the version in Longest Day, and for that matter, actually Saving Private Ryan as well, you have far more soldiers in that initial wave than you would have actually seen on D Day itself. Um, you only have oh, just about a battalion going ashore, so. Um, you're not going to see that volume in such a compressed space. But that's a typical Hollywood movie problem. I mean, if you want to give the impression that this is some big battle, you've got to, you've got to show the people. So they tend to throw a lot more people into the scene than would have been the case in reality. Um, and uh, they compress it also in time. Um, I thought The Longest Day in some respects was a little bit better in the sense that... Um, the distance that the troops had to run to get up to the beach is a bit more accurate in Longest Day than it is in Saving Private Ryan. Saving Private Ryan, they're pretty much up pretty close to the to the sand pretty quick, whereas, in fact, the distance between the low tide and the beach is quite lengthy. I mean, it takes a, takes a fair amount of time to walk or run that distance. Yeah, you know, Steve, it's interesting. No movie that I've ever seen that's depicted Omaha Beach, which there are only three as far as I know, this, uh, the Big Red One, and then The Longest Day, none of them ever show the seawall. And But they mention the seawall, like in Saving Private Ryan, but it's not there. And uh, so it's like clear that was something written in the script, but what the hell is that? The production didn't know. But um and they kind of show it in in a little bit in uh, in the in the longest day, but I think it's that's supposed to be that you say that anti tank wall. Maybe I don't know. It's it's really confusing. Well, wherever they filmed, it didn't have the topography that the actual Omaha Beach does. They kept talking about the hill, and you if you didn't know anything about the story, you'd think that the hill is that um, is that like little mound that's in front of the you know, the characters right away. You know, when they get to shore, basically they're at the base of a very small hill, maybe 20 feet high or 30 feet high. Whereas, in fact, at Omaha Beach, what you have is you have the seawall and then you have a road there. There's a, a road that goes right in front of the, or um, alongside the beach. And then you have a massive hill behind it that's a couple hundred feet high. And so when you see Longest Day, um, physically what they film doesn't look at all like the actual Omaha Beach. Except for the German scenes, the strange thing is, is that the American scenes would like the um, the uh, the the Colonel Coda or the General Coda scene, you get this very compressed feel. But when you go to the German side and you see the Germans firing down on the American troops, you can see that they're sitting up on top of a fairly high hill. 
So there's kind of a discontinuity between the American scenes on Omaha Beach and the German scenes. Yeah, the 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 trenches are a little bit uh, a little bit uh, too elaborate, I would say, in the German perspective. But uh, um, and also, but you know, it's but they're, they're they're not as grandiose as what you see in Saving Private. Right? They're not that either. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, uh, so that's pretty funny. But uh, no, I. I um, no no movie has ever properly shown you know the actual like what the layout would have looked like with the german defenses on omaha beach um one thing though that is kind of neat to see in this uh that i don't think i've seen in any other depiction is the uh panzer dreterm uh the uh the the german tank turrets uh that are mounted on fortifications uh you do see those a number of times in this movie um and uh, there, there, are, there are a couple of them are uh, uh, APXR turrets, uh, which is accurate. And uh, I think at, towards the beginning, you see some that are um, Renault, Renault, or Renault, however you say it. There's, there's some Samo, there's some Samo turrets, except what they, they must have had, I, I can only suspect that they had a mock-up. I mean, they look very good. The, the Samo or Charby turrets look extremely good, but they suddenly appear in odd places. Like one of them <laughs> appears on one of the bunkers on point to hawk yeah i noticed that too you know it's just it's just like they i almost think that it was styrofoam because they just carried it over and stuck it down in the scene that they shot at long submit at the artillery thing same thing one of the observation bunkers your son has a tank turret mounted on top of it yeah and it was the same one that's over at uh point to hawk so my my suspicion is is that they had some kind of mock-up that was lightweight because I, I would find it hard to believe that they take a two or three ton steel turret and keep moving it around Normandy, <laughs> but it shows up in multiple scenes, but just in odd places. They're yeah. not. They're, it's not a standard Panzer Dre term where it's on a Tobruk type, a Ringstein type uh, fortification. Instead, it's up on the top of observation bunkers or things I, like that. So it's good in the sense of it's nice background detail, but on the other hand, if you want to be picky about it, it they put it in odd places. Right, that's the thing. Like, no one has ever done these things 100% right. They will have elements that are correct, but uh, they're never like... Um, yeah, I think that at Omaha Beach, the one that's just... I think it's just sitting on the wall. That that giant wall, I think it's just sitting on it. It's like, you can go inside that wall and get inside that turret. Um, but... Uh, and if, if you look closely during the Omaha scene, that turret that's up there uh, in the background, they have like a light inside the barrel that's flashing. It's not even, you know, to simulate gunfire. Um, but they did that on the German side, too, because, like, when they do the Pluscott scenes, Pluscott is shown over at the, the big observation Longes. bunker that's over at Longsud Med, yeah. rather than this crappy little dirt um, bunker he was actually stationed in. And, of course, he he's one of the real enigmas of the movie because there have been a really lot of allegations in Germany that he wasn't even on uh, the beach. He was way down um, down at the far end near the British beaches. Um, one of the people that, that we've talked about before, Severlo, who was on Omaha Beach, has claimed, because he was in the same unit, the same artillery unit, he claims that Pluscott wasn't even on the beach that day, that he was back, shacked up with his French mistress back behind the beach. Mm-hmm. And Pluscott f- figures very, very heavily in the movie. He's you know, he's there before the landings. He's there at the landings talking about, oh, I see the 5,000 ships. Uh, if you don't believe me, mm-hmm. you know, come down here and look yourself. And then, then he's driving the Kubelwagen back from the beach and he passes, a, you know, German troops that are marching towards the beach where they get strafed by some Spitfires. 
So he gets this major role, and yet there's some real debate whether any of this is true. Well, uh, he's featured a lot. Well, he's in the book uh, quite a bit. And uh, from what I have understood, that all just comes from his testimony when he was interviewed by Cornelius Ryan, from what I understand. Yeah, it, it does. I, I have Pliskat's interview from the Ryan Files. Mm-hmm. Um, although in the movie, it doesn't follow the interview in a lot of detail. They invented or they added a lot of stuff. They kept him as a character, but mm. they added stuff. Um, you know, like the scene before, you know, like him being there hours before the landing and all that stuff, or him going back from the uh, from the beach. First of all, he wouldn't have had a Kugelwagen. He would have been lucky if he had a had a horse. Um, <laughs> so a lot of that stuff got invented. But the, the bigger question is, is whether Pliskat's memoirs, the stuff that he gave to Ryan, are at all uh, 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 legitimate. There's, there's some suspicion that it's another one of these stolen valor cases where he made his role seem a lot more important than it was. Yeah. Um, what, what do you think, uh, Steve? Do you think that's the case with him? I, I don't really know because the problem is the guy who accused Pliskot of that is another guy who's got the stolen valor problem, and that's uh, Tony dubious, St- yeah. Severlo, the, uh, the so-called butcher of Omaha Beach who was over in the, um, the 16th Infantry Regiment sector. Um, and um, they got into uh, exchanges over in Germany that haven't been reported very heavily in the United States. But Severlo, who was just a young kid at the time, he came out and he was the one who claimed that uh, Pliskot was not on the beach like he claimed. But then Severlo himself claims that he was manning an MG-42 machine gun in a trench um, up at the strong point overlooking where 16th Infantry Regiment landed. And yet we we know from from other records that he was the aide to the um, to the artillery battery commander, we know what bunker he was in, and we know what his role was. It was typical for the German battery commanders to have a uh, forward observation bunker on the beach, and that's what he was doing. And and Severlo was assigned to that officer. So what was he doing with an MG forty two? He had his function. His function was an aide to um, the the battery the, the battery commander. That's a very important function because it, it's the artillery battery that's that's killing most of the Americans down at the beach not the MG42. And you have to have an aide there because, you know, if, you're, if your field telephone wire gets cut, you need somebody to act as a runner to go back and communicate via one of the other uh, field telephones or radios. Um, so it, it's hard to believe that he would have suddenly been given an MG42. The other thing is the MG42 is a crew-served weapon. You have to be trained on it. And there's no evidence from several of his own memoirs that he was ever trained as a machine gunner. He was always in an artillery unit. Um, artillery units do have MG42s for self-defense, but um, he was never assigned to that type of a role. So you have to wonder if he was just one of these people who, you know, he started telling a tall tale and then it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, uh, that seems to be the widely accepted version of his story now, that uh, people are kind of going away from the Beast of Omaha thing and going more to, eh, that's kind of dubious, you know, I don't know about that. that. That's that's the impression I get. I've talked to a number of people, talked to a bunch of the people who conduct uh, tours at Omaha Beach, and so they've had a, a certain amount of experience also talking to the German veterans. Because when you think of Omaha Beach, you think, well, the American veterans go there and the British veterans go to Sword and they go to Gold Beach. But a lot of German veterans go to uh, Omaha Beach and a lot of the German tour guides have talked to these guys. And so, you know, the feedback that comes from them is somewhat different than what you hear on the American side. You know, because the American or British tour guides 
are there to um, deal with American tourists and British tourists, not with the Germans. So um, there are different stories come out from that side. It's funny. The one thing I will say about this movie is I, I really appreciate how they do do German or they also have the German perspective in it and um, and the fact that it's in German. I know they did film the same scenes in English, but at the end of the day, they decided to do it all in authentic German and uh, the same with, you know, French and stuff like that. Um, however, when it comes to the German side, it is all like the high ranking stuff. The Pluscat is the closest thing we have to like a frontline character, you know, a character who's in the battle there. There are no German soldier characters in this. Um, that, that was because Ryan uh, had very little luck interviewing lower ranking Germans. Because if you go through his collection out at Ohio University, he has very, very few German interviews, and he has a few others that don't make it into the film, but they're, they're, they're not that sort of first-hand um, uh, sort of account like the Pluscott memoir um, that would fit well in the film. They were mostly uh, people who were a little bit further away from the front or who weren't right up against the beach on D-Day. Part of it, quite honestly, is just that the German casualties were so high. Yeah. Um, uh, the the German casualties on the be- on all of the beaches were were very high. Um, also, a lot of Germans got captured as uh, prisoners of war, and um, you know they never had an opportunity to record their memoirs or or their recollections of the um, of the scene. There really aren't a lot of German records of lower ranking you know enlisted men or sergeants or low ranking officers. There's a handful. Um, the Verville um, Memorial over in France, they have a website, and they have a few recollections of um, lower-ranking German officers like lieutenants yeah. um, who, who talk a little. But there's not a lot of fleshed-out detail that would be good in a movie like this. I mean, for a movie like this, you need some drama. Right. Um, right. There, was only, there was only one character who it's, it's, um, it's a shame that uh, Ryan didn't get him at the time. There was a young German uh, machine gunner who was down in front of the bunkers at the Verville draw. And um, he actually got involved in a shootout with some of the um, the conscripted uh, foreign troops in the German army where they basically refused to fight. And he went over and tried to grenade their trench. Um, so that would have that would have made a fairly dramatic scene. But um, yeah, uh, uh, Carl, that, Carl that stuff came out that. Vagner. Yeah, that came out separate from. Uh, you know the stuff that uh, that uh, Cornelius Ryan was able to pull together. That's fascinating. I actually wanted to touch on that because there's a the rumor or you know the fact that there were a lot of Ostruppen or you know whatever you want to say Eastern troops under the German army in Normandy. So that might be another reason you know why you don't get these first hand accounts because I know a lot of those guys ended up getting picked up and sent back east you know to Stalin and everything. Um, but in reality, how many were Ostruppen units like? Around the Omaha area, they're, they're, they weren't so much Ostruppen. What happened with the 716th Infantry Division is, in 1943, they had a lot of their younger men pulled out to be sent off to Russia because there was, you know, this enormous demand for young um, infantry troops. And what ended up happening then is that they got older German troops, you know, guys who were 30 years old or 40 years old, who some some of whom served in World War One, and they were fed in. And the other thing that happened in '43, um, because they were so desperate for troops, is that the Germans started recruiting in areas that Germany had occupied at the beginning of the war. So, meaning Alsace and uh, 
the Czech Republic and Poland. Now, the Alsatians weren't sent into Omaha because there was considerable fear that they would just turn tail and run, you know, because they, in many cases, the Alsatians spoke French. So you didn't want to have them there. So they mostly used Central European troops, um, mostly Poles. There were a lot of Pol Polish troops because um, Germany occupied the western part of Poland. And so theoretically, they were German citizens, so they recruited out of them. And that's so you, part of the whole Volksdeutscher thing, I believe. Yeah, that's exactly. Like the, yeah. yeah, they were considered Volksdeutsch. You know, they had different categories. They were considered like a low-level Volksdeutsch. Because you'll see a lot of accounts of Americans capturing um, German troops on Omaha Beach and saying, well, they don't speak German, they speak Polish. Um, and that was the case. And that's what happened at this in this particular instance. They had a, a squad that was made up mostly of Polish troops who basically said, we're not fighting. You know, they were they were in a trench. Um, in the Virville Dry area, and this German sergeant sees these guys and these, these Polish Volksdeutsch are all hunkered down and refusing to fight. And so he goes over there and tries to wing a couple of grenades into the trench. Um, but of course, there's just so much incoming fire that he decides this is a really stupid thing to do, and he goes back to his own trench. Um, <laughs> so there, there's, there's, that sort, there's that sort of thing going on. You see it also in the Ranger accounts where they capture some of these Volksdeutsch, and the Volksdeutsch basically rat out where the German positions are, because there's no love loss between the Poles and the Germans. So, um, <laughs> so the the Volksdeutsch in seven sixteenth are probably uh, maybe as many as a third of the troops. Wow! So that that I, is, that uh, is an issue. I I knew a lot of uh, through museums and stuff. I met a lot of Second Armored vets and stuff. That was kind of my specialty with, with armor and things. And I knew this one uh, A Second Reconnaissance vet. He was bending to Berlin the whole way. And he had a funny story from the later campaigns in Normandy around uh, Cobra, where long story short, they come up on this uh, German machine gun position where the guys are looking down the road, and uh, they capture him. And he he's from North Carolina, so he would always say, "We're ornamentals." And, uh, you know, they picked him up and they, they brought him back to HQ and their headquarters like, where'd you get these guys? And they said, oh, out in the front. And they said, well, don't bring us anymore. Because they were so shocked to see these, as they call them, ornamentals, you know, orientals. And uh, so you do, you know, get a little bit of that taste. And it's just interesting how these different places it was picked up. But no idea a lot of poles. It's very interesting. Um, the, the most I've heard that from in terms of Omaha Beach is from like, uh, you know, Lieutenant Spaulding from uh, the 1st Infantry Division around... Mm. Uh, you know, uh, St. Laurent and, uh, you know, WN-64, 65. Uh, he said that a lot of the guys they captured around there were Polish. You see a lot of, like, crazy weapons, too. You know, Eastern weapons, Polish and things. Um, but you do see, like, Russian weapons, too. There's a very famous photo of, a, I think, a glider pilot um, on a Higgins boat, you know, going back to England. And he has an SVT, you know, yeah. lying against the side of the boat. I know that a PBSHs show up and stuff. Um, and I believe a lot of French... Mostly and, and weapons were used on the wall. Yeah, a lot of the um, uh, you know, uh, well, you still would see like MG08s and stuff like that. Um, the Polish WZ30, you see that uh, a lot on around Omaha. The, the the reason you see that stuff is that these divisions, the static divisions, they're up along the coast, not not 352nd Infantry, which was a a regular German infantry division, but the static divisions, besides the regular table of organization equipment stuff, they had a separate arsenal of weapons that were assigned to the bunkers. Um, so when a unit would be pulled out and another one moved in, those weapons weren't pulled out with the unit. They were left there behind. So that was a complete hodgepodge of stuff. So 716th had all sorts of stuff. They had Polish weapons, Soviet weapons, French weapons. And the reason was is that a lot of these capture weapons, they didn't have a lot of ammo for them. 
So they didn't want to incorporate them into the regular Wehrmacht units. Instead, they gave them to these beach defense units, figuring, you know, we'll give them as much ammunition as we have, and they're only going to last as long as they do. And then that's the end of it. So, you know, they didn't have tons of, of Soviet small arms ammo, so they'd stick them in the bunkers, and, you know, when they ran out, they ran out, and that was the end of it. <laughs> you know, use what you have. <laughs> You're not going to find any Sturmgewehrs uh, along the, uh, the Atlantic. <laughs> well, were there actually M any MG42s? Oh yeah, definitely. Because they're they're listed in the TO they're they're listed in some of the TO and E listings. They <laughs> weren't they weren't necessarily that common. Part of the problem is that a lot of the um, uh, KSDNs, the German equivalent of TO and E, um, they'll only say light machine gun. They won't specifically identify whether it's an MG thirty four or forty two. Um, but there are some unit records which clearly identify MG forty twos. Units like the three fifty second would have them. I seriously doubt. That 716th or 709th would have had any. Because I, got those... a, I, I was able to get my hands on a, a list of weapons for the 716th, and uh, they only list four, uh, 34s on it. They don't list 42s. But, I mean, that was that, it was also dated 1943, so who knew, knows what happened between then and there. Yeah, and, but that, that's typical, though, because they would get their, their weapons when they were formed, and they were formed in 43. So, you know, the 42s weren't that common, and they would be given to priority units. So you know, they would have gone out to the Russian front. Um, whereas a unit like 352nd, 352nd was only organized in the autumn of 43, so they would have gotten the newer equipment. And once again, they were a line unit that was supposed to be sent off to the Eastern Front. They only ended up in Normandy because Rommel put pressure on Berlin. He said he needed some better troops, and they happened to keep keep behind the 352nd. But it was it was never intended to be in Omaha or in, in Normandy. It's funny coming from a reactor perspective. All you see is three fifty second units, so it's funny that they were actually asked to get there. So yeah. they usually yeah they never were they were they were there yeah they were built up in France. Well, typically what would happen is when they 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 built infantry divisions, they'd bring back the the so called torso divisions from Russia, the ones that had been basically destroyed, and they used them as a colonel to build a new division, and that's what happened with three fifty second. But the idea is they would be trained and formed in France. And then once their training was finished, they'd be sent sent over to the Russian front. And what happened with 352nd is their formation didn't get finished until about January, February 1944. And they were expected to be sent off. And Rommel directly intervened and said, I need better troops here. You know, I've got, only got these static divisions. And he specifically wanted a good infantry division. He wasn't concerned. Everybody thinks, oh, Rommel thought it would be Omaha Beach. What he was trying to defend was the... Um, the Vera River Estuary, that area between Omaha Beach and Utah Beach. And so the focus of 352nd, I mean, we think of them now as Omaha Beach, but in, to a large extent, their real focus was the Vera River Estuary. You know, you had that whole regiment sitting up in the area between Omaha and the uh, Vera River Estuary over near Grand Comp. Um, and they were, they were stationed there to, to cover that sector. Uh, didn't uh, the 716th, didn't they, weren't they mostly over by the Vire, the Vire River too? No, they, the, 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 the elements that served in the Omaha Beach area were pretty much just in Omaha Beach, except that they still had a couple of um, artillery battalions out further to the west. So mm -hmm. like uh, those, the Mizee batteries, you know, the ones that have been kind of controversial because they, um, there's been a new museum put up over there. Uh, that was, those were a couple of batteries from, uh, from uh, the 716th. But most of the troops that were over, in that sector were 352nd. There were some leftover 716 stuff, but that's that's just because at one time the 716th covered basically everything from the Vera River estuary all the way over to Sword Beach. 
I mean, that division was stretched across the whole D-Day sector. Um, and then 352nd comes in and reinforces the sector around Omaha Beach. Hmm. I believe uh, FJR sixth was in that area too, like around Saint Mary Dumont and everything. Yeah, they were they uh, were further they were further west though. They were over on the other side mm-hmm. of the river. Um, oh yep. And wasn't there like a war game going on or something? I know they allude a little bit to that in in the movie. The, the but... war the war game was a high level divisional or actually core level war game. It wasn't it wasn't a war game in the sense that people were you know the infantry soldiers were running around. Um, okay. What got everybody running around was the paratroop drop. Um, so what happened in the um, first thing in the morning, 352nd was obliged. When Berlin allowed Rommel to have the 352nd Division, the caveat was that he had to leave one regiment in Corps Reserve to serve as a, as a Corps Reserve. So he only had two regiments to stick up against the beach. So he had one regiment roughly in Omaha Beach area and then one from uh, Omaha Beach westward over towards Ground Comp, over towards the Vere River. And the third one was kept back in reserve several miles back from the beach. And so when the paratroopers start dropping, that regiment is assigned to go and hunt down paratroopers, uh, American paratroopers. And so that regiment gets all scattered to hell and back um, on D-Day morning because, of course, the paratroopers start dropping, you know, around midnight. And this, uh, the, that particular regiment from 352nd is immediately sent out to try to track down the paratroopers. And so, there, you know, there's a lot of talk about the Germans, you know, German troops all over the place. Well, yeah, they were because that particular regiment was in reserve, under Corps Reserve, and it was sent around to try to police up the paratroopers. Huh. Interesting. And, yeah, you know, I believe some of them had also had anti-paratrooper operations and things. They talk about, you know, Rommel's asparagus and stuff. So they kind of did have an idea of what they were trying to do, but it was such a big operation. Oh, yeah, you know, there, there the were, area. There's, if you go and look at the records down in National Archives, there's all sorts of anti-paratrooper, anti-glider stuff. They actually tried it to flood the highlands up above Omaha Beach, the, the flat plateau up above the beach. Um, I found a map down there, actually in the 1st Division records, where there's plans on how they were going to flood the area to prevent paratroopers or gliders from landing up in that area behind the beach. But they tried doing it, but the topography is such that every time they tried flooding, it just drained away. So they gave up on that. But they had lots of other areas where... Were flooded. I mean, especially behind Utah Beach. You know, everybody acts as though that stuff behind Utah Beach were like swamps and stuff. That wasn't swamps. That was areas that the Germans dammed up to and flooded. That that's not a natural occurrence. That's uh that was deliberate German efforts to uh, make it more difficult to land paratroopers in that sector. Well, that's why the causeways were so important because it was the, the links from the you know the sea to the uh to like yeah, the actual routes. So. <laughs> yep, yeah, very much so. Yep. And we touched on it a little bit, but just to bring it back, you know, um, so Point to Hawk, you know, traditionally that was one of the areas that really fared very badly during the invasion. You know, they, they reached their initial objectives, but then things didn't go well. So how is that really portrayed in the film versus reality, and how did people like it? Well, I, I just finished a book on the Rangers at Point to Hawk um, called Smashing Hitler's Guns, which, you know, goes into some history. And it's part, one of the first books that actually deals with the German side as well. But... Um, one of the things that's interesting in terms of the film is the Ranger reaction to the film. And the only thing I can say is that the second Rangers, you know, Rudder's Rangers, the guys who landed there, did not like the film. Um, and the reason for it is that they thought that it was very unfair to their mission because the final scene at Point Hawk is a couple of the Rangers saying to each other, well, this mission was all wasted. You know, you see all of these, these casualties, which in the film are grossly exaggerated, 
And, you know, at the, the culminating scene is, well, you know, we came here for nothing. Well, in fact, that's not what happened. Um, what was not very well known at the time was that the Germans had pulled the guns back because of the uh, one of the early bombing raids in April of 1944. Um, and the reason the guns weren't in the casemates is an entirely more difficult technical issue, which I deal with in the books. But yes, they weren't there either. Um, but the Rangers did find the guns. The guns were still intact. They had ammunition. They were back behind the beach. What the real secret is, um, is that, you know, why weren't the guns fired on D-Day? And the reason is that the German artillery crews all got drunk the night before. <laughs> and the reason was, and it, it, you know, it, it doesn't come across very well, but Point Du Hawk was the most heavily bombed area in Europe in 1944. It just got bombed repeatedly. It was the only battery that was there at the early period of time in 1942-43. So it showed up on all the Allied intelligence assessments. So it was always top on the list of targets for bombardment, for both naval bombardment and aerial bombardment. In fact, it was marked on the Allied list as target number one. And so it just got the bejesus bombed out of it. They started bombing it in April. The first uh, uh, U.S. Air, aircraft tech, a, a couple of squadrons of A-20s, hit it and destroyed one gun. There were six guns there. They destroyed one, damaged two, left only three intact. And after that mission, they pulled the guns back from the actual fortified area on Point Duhok, and they put them near a tree line about a kilometer back from the, um, from the promontory. Um, and the Allies never knew this because the Germans kept the gun pits camouflaged, so Allied intelligence right up until D-Day thought the guns were still there, which is why the Ranger mission went ahead. Um, but in fact, they weren't near the uh, battery. But in any event, the German garrison just continued to get bombed and bombed and bombed and bombed. And the gun crews were just fed up. And then the night of, if you recall, um, you know, the paratroopers start jumping around midnight. So there's all this air activity. And so the German gun crews think, oh, we're just going to go and get bombed again. Because they had been bombed, you know, several times in the previous weeks. So, you know, they hear all this air activity. They, oh, hell, we're going to just get bombed again. So most of them just got rip-roaring drunk and basically abandoned their sight. The reason the guns never fired is they just said, hell with us, and left. Um, so, you know, you end up with a very small garrison on Point Du Hawk the morning of D-Day. Um, and D-Day that night, or um, Point Du Hawk that night gets bombed very heavily. The, the heaviest bomb run on Point Du Hawk was the night before, around 3 o'clock in the morning on D-Day. The RAF uh, launched a major Lancaster heavy bomber attack that dropped literally hundreds of tons of bombs on Point Du Hawk, followed up by a U.S. B-26 raid around dawn, followed up by the battleship USS Texas bombarding it for 30 minutes. So it was just absolutely leveled. I mean, it was just absolutely devastated. And that's the one thing that people touch on, like the photos of it uh, from the air, you know, the craters and everything. But hearing all that, that's fascinating. It literally was the number one target on the coast. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and so, and so when the when the rangers got up there, they couldn't find anything because it was just it was on you know it was like a lunar landscape. It was just craters all over the place. Um, it, it, it's surprising that any Germans survived, but a, a relatively small number of Germans survived and did fight back. But the mood the movie depicts the casualties much at a much high uh, heavier uh, loss rate than actually occurred. In fact, I've never found much evidence that there were maybe a handful of rangers were killed on the the climb up the cliffs. Everybody thinks that the climb up the cliffs is the tough thing. Um, I'm sure that some rangers were wounded and maybe a handful may have been killed, 
but most of the ranger casualties do not come from the cliff climb. That actually went pretty smoothly. The Germans were fighting back, but for a variety of reasons, mostly because there just weren't very many German troops, they weren't able to inflict very many casualties on the rangers. Where the rangers take the casualties is after they get to the top of Point Duhok and start to push inland. And then they start to encounter these surviving groups of Germans who are further away from Point Duhok itself and who survive the bombing attacks. So there, there's little instances, you know, in the first hours um, pushing back away from Point Duhok where the rangers suffer far heavier casualties than they did during the cliff climb. Huh. And they were relieved, was it two or three days later? Yeah, or... yeah. The, the, the plan was, um, they, had, they had two optional plans for the 5th Rangers. There were two Ranger battalions that were going to be landed on D-Day. There was the 2nd, Rudders Rangers, the guys who actually do go up onto Point Duhok. And there was uh, uh, the 5th Ranger Battalion. Um, and there was a, 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 a split plan. There were sort of a plan A, plan B. What plan A was is that the 2nd Rangers, uh, three companies from 2nd Rangers would go up. And if the mission succeeded, if they got up to the top of the cliffs, then 5th Rangers would come behind them, reinforce them, and then they'd push back off Point Duhok and capture those roads. Um, but what happened is there was some communication problems, and 5th Rangers doesn't realize that 2nd uh, that Rangers, the Rudders Rangers, have successfully landed at Point Duhok. So as a result, Plan B was... Fifth Rangers will land near the Verville Draw and support the 29th Infantry Division, well, actually the 116th Infantry. And that's what happens. Fifth Rangers lands a, a bit to the east of Verville Draw, and that's where in the movie you see uh, Coda saying, well, I've got some Rangers over here. Well, that's that's who he's referring to. There were there was a couple companies from 2nd uh, uh, Rangers plus the, the entirety of the Fifth Rangers who had landed there. And they give that uh, attack over the hilltops a lot of momentum because you had all these, you know, highly motivated, specialized troops. And they, they were lucky in that they landed with far fewer casualties than the initial waves from the 116th Infantry, which, you know, were absolutely massacred on the beach. And uh, isn't that where the line came, the Rangers lead the way, was born? Um, That's exactly it. And that came from Coda. I'm, I'm actually surprised that they didn't use that line in the movie because even then... That was the, you know, that was the motto for the Rangers. You know, Rangers lead the way. And that was, you know, the, the Robert Mitchum character, um, you know, in the movie. And he does, uh, he does say, though, the line, uh, <laughs> the dead and those who are about to die, which was said by George Taylor from uh, the 1st Infantry Division. Right, right. A lot of that stuff just all gets mashed together. Right, right. There wasn't even, there wasn't even a 29th let's go, at least what I could see. So, yeah. Uh, i um i I actually like robert mitchum as coda i think he did a he did a really good job um john wayne as vandervoort is just (laughs) john wayne you know whatever um and he's way too way too he's way too john wayne yeah 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 Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's 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 playing john wayne he's not playing vandervoort yeah and Um, in reality the he did break his leg vandervoort and they put him in a handcart and the real hand carts they have are like a quarter of the size of the one that they put him on. Right. So yeah. it's funny. The Duke has to get the big hand cart. They probably didn't have access to it. But when you look at the originals, you're like, wow. Oh, those, that's, yeah, that's, those little airborne carts are tiny. Yeah, the M3A4. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're designed to carry, you know, a couple of box of 30 caliber machine gun ammunition. They're not designed to carry yep. a person. <laughs> exactly. Yep. And some 28 year old with a broken leg. And no. he stayed in for the rest of the campaign, if I remember correctly. Yeah, he um, did. On he crutches. had a splint. And, 
There's famous photos of him with like a raincoat on, just looking miserable. Yeah. He later <laughs> uh, later got his eye blown out uh, during the Ardennes. And then, oh wow! That's how he. That's how the war ended for him. Um, he actually broke his leg in Sicily, and that's what actually how he broke his leg on D-Day was that. Oh, his, interesting. His leg was already broken. Yeah, and so he broke it again. <laughs> wow. Well, that's interesting because you you know realize the eighty second how they had such a combat lineage in the the Mediterranean you know mm-hmm. had no idea um, and other paratrooper scenes that were great is the Pegasus Bridge scene is so well done and another actual location uh, yeah and I believe the, the the lead actor of that I forget his name now of the British contingent was Richard. actually a veteran of the Ox and Bucks Richard he was part Todd. of the original assault yeah. yep he was part of the original assault on Pegasus Bridge. And he became an actor, and then was lucky enough to play his, his commander in that. Yeah, he calls there's one, so many good scenes in that. He calls one of his men Todd in it, which is a nod to himself. <laughs> oh, funny. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but the, like the flare where the German shoots the flare and hits the bridge. I mean, that is one of those. It's on par with the whole casino scene. It's just so well done and shot, and just really gets the you know it's happening. The invasion is here. Yeah. Hold until relieved. Hold until relieved. And, and the, the and the special thing. effects on that weren't too bad, like the glider landing scene. Mm-hmm. Um, as compared to some of the other scenes, that was obviously done with, you know, special effects from the time, and that that was reasonably believable. I mean, it was obviously green screen. You know, when you're sitting inside the glider and you're looking out, you know, it's green screen. But on the other hand, it, it's reasonably compelling. I mean, it's yeah, it's not it's not as bad as that scene with the German officers overlooking the beach. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Right. I have to say, uh, well, and you know, going into other things that are depicted like the. Uh, the the Rupert dummies are way more <laughs> elaborate in this than they were in real life, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I, everything with the British in this movie is a little is kind of. There are parts of it that are good. There are other parts like the whole sword beach scene. I don't really like with uh, the beach master and all that. Uh, it just it's <laughs> it relies so much on humor, and uh, you know it just gets kind of annoying. <laughs> Winston, Winston, right? You know? Yeah, and then you have the Sean Connery character there, you know, with all of his you know, shouting witty, witty and stuff. Quips. <laughs> yeah, and it's like this is just kind of rid- everything with the well, British is kind of depicted as just being the, funny. There is a joke on the continent that you know Englishmen are insane, but they're only uh, you know, dangerous to themselves. <laughs> you know, or they're harmlessly insane, as they say. So, and you have that like with where's my communion set? You know, mm-hmm. and, and the things that keep coming through. And uh, it is funny how they are depicted. But Brits did get this thing about this coolness under under fire from the war. Like a lot of correspondents will say, like when they listened to Spitfire pilots engaging in combat, they were like the quiet. They were the calmest ever. Like, oh chap, you got a measurement on your six. Oh tally ho, you know. And that might be like posh or making fun of it, but that was some real transmissions, you know. So it is funny how it is, you know, comical in our sense, in American Western sense. But some of that stuff did happen in a way. No, so. I I don't doubt it. It's just you know a personal thing oh yeah <laughs> just a personal preference or the dude that put his boots on backwards you know that actually is <laughs> that covered in the funny. book um that oh, i remember that from oh. the book yeah they say that this guy this german officer was in such a hurry and such a panic that he put his <laughs> boots on backwards didn't realize it until the end of the day um, funny. yeah <laughs> uh but and also the paratrooper scene the saint mary glee scene was great too with the bells and everything i mean they thought they did a good job because i know that there was a fire in the town and yeah, that's um, even true. though the parachutes are the wrong, they're yeah. not camouflaged, and they're not yeah. they they couldn't shoot from their parach- parachutes when they're falling <laughs> down. They're shooting their Thompsons as they're falling. You know, I that's a uh, I, I wonder if they took a a ploy out of uh, you know because they're actually were dropping to an extent, and uh, if I remember correctly, Red Dawn they jumped out of hot air balloons. 
Uh, so I wonder if they if they did the same thing to mimic the paratroopers jumping into the town. Well, they might oh, have. Yeah, because I mean, if you look yeah. if you look at some of the shots when they come in, they there's one guy. At first, I thought maybe like they were jumping from some, like a base or something like that, but they're too. It's either they're jumping from a base that's pretty high up because there's one or two shots where they're showing them and the shoot hasn't fully deployed and they cut it right when it's jerking him back for the deployment. And then he falls like ten <laughs> feet, you know, like and lands. Um, so either they were doing um, hot air balloons parachute or parachute towers, towers really high mm-hmm. up. But um, it's interesting though because uh, I only know that from someone who I know who was on the Red Dawn set, and that's how they did the. He was one of the Russians uh, that lands in the back of the school to do a call to that movie. He's one of those Russians that's kicking his legs because he's trying to keep him from himself from spiraling because he's like. Jumping out of a hot air balloon is completely different. He's like, because that thing moves when you jump out, so it goes boop, and you have nothing to kick off. He's like, so like I'm like, he's like, I it was hard for me not to start twirling, and he's like, I'm jumping out with all these other guys. You were jumping out of other hot air balloons, like spotted around the field. So probably wasn't hot air balloons. It probably was a base, but I just thought it was very interesting to to try to That's, mimic that drop. That sounds- so. That sounds insanely dangerous for a. It movie was. That's do. why they hired. Uh, <laughs> that's why they hired army, uh, uh, army yeah. guys to do it. And he was in the army, so they did it. He said. He said it was the wow. best job ever. He, said he got. He got paid to not have to do anything, do a little bit of work, and drink beer all weekend, and then get and then covered well, thank- in squibs and get shot. <laughs> so, <laughs> thank God nothing yeah. went wrong. <laughs> that's the '80s filmmaking, I think, all in all together. That's yeah, what insurance yeah. is for. <laughs> um. But yeah, no, the that whole scene was super cool. I liked that. I liked that a lot. Even though, yeah, the Ranger Rick firing from the parachute from the parachutes, I don't think would have been very easy to do. <laughs> well, yeah, there, there, like there, there were also there were far too many Thompson submachine guns in the movie. Yes, as, as a yeah. whole. Yeah, Every, everybody and their brother has Tommy guns. I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. I didn't really. I don't remember anyone firing an M1. I just remember seeing. No, they're they're just in the yeah. Background. I don't think I think I only it's see like, Thompson and carbines maybe shooting. Yeah, car carbines there and are, Thompson. Yeah. That's the only thing you see shooting. Yeah, and and, and stens. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, stens and MP40s. No, uh, no car 98s. No, 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 no. There's too, there's K 98s when the Ruperts are falling. Uh, that they're yeah. shooting oh. with. And then, okay, and then right. one, one scene. scene, and there's also a ZB26 <laughs> for like twenty, like four seconds. I saw that. That oh, was yeah, cool yeah. to see. Yeah. And the Bofors gun shooting, har- like, you know, horizontally, but they're not shooting in the air. I thought that yeah. was interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I guess they're shooting out yeah. to sea. The Rupert, <laughs> shooting. The, the Rupert scenes have the most guns active, I think, of Cal, but the rest of the movie seems to yeah, be. Yeah, that like- was. The, and, <laughs> and they. it looks like they filmed that at Longes sur Mer, and they wheeled up a bunch of quad 50s. Uh, for the Germans to use, <laughs> and uh, yeah. so they'll, they'll show so. up in a couple places because they show up on a point to Huck also. They have yeah. they have a quad mm. fifty sitting mm. over near the um, observation bunker. It's like yeah, fuck it, it's a gun. We, we, no we, one's we got know. we got one parking over there. It looks like more military <laughs> gear. Right. Put yeah. a Maltese cross on it. You're good to go. That's yeah. one of my favorite things about classic <laughs> war movies. Honestly, seeing stuff like that. It's just back then, before the internet existed. Like, who cares? Just put I, it I think they went to the French army and just said, "Give us some military-looking stuff," and they got yeah. this allotment of stuff, and then they just kind of move it around and park it whenever they're filming. Oh, we're going yeah. over to Longstreet today. Oh, bring over all those guns and park them over there. <laughs> 
it's funny because they do have a good deal of original German vehicles. They have coupe wagons and whatever, and they have a nice student app at the end of the film. Um, right, is they have the uh, the pilot and the paratrooper meeting. But if you look at the zoom depth, there's like it's covered in swastikas and eagles, <laughs> and it's just like you know, gotta know it's Nazi. Uh, uh, yeah, it, it was just pretty funny to, to see that, you know. Um, but yeah, it's, but there's some really good shots too because I have some lists here. I love the the one shot of the battleship turret turning. You know that was pretty cool to see. Um, the loaded Higgins boats, like you rarely see a Higgins boat with like you know a platoon of men. So that was yeah. really neat to see it, you know, in the surf. Some of the, the one, some of the extras are black though, and they're mixed in with white troops, I, which you wouldn't have seen that. So a good friend of mine, um, he was military intelligence for a long time, and he knew an older sergeant in a reserve unit that was in the Mediterranean in the '60s, and he said that he was part of the of the shooting with this. Apparently, part of the American Mediterranean fleet, um, they were in Spain and they were doing this, and that they hated it because they they had like three days of shooting, it's over a weekend. And they were doing it a million times, and apparently they were shooting ball bearings at them to like get the hits in the water. And the guys were getting screwed up because they kept shooting them, <laughs> you know. So like they were covered in welts, they were soaking, and they just they hated it. So if you watch it a lot of times, they're coming off the boats; they're already soaked from head to toe. Hey man, you and, know, uh, <laughs> get those reactions, you know. And that's funny where you know where Mitchum at the end he pulls out the only dry cigar. Mm-hmm. On all of them on each from his pocket, which is, you know, which is funny to think about everything that went into it. But, uh, no, and the troops in the surf, that was a really cool shot, too. I really love that. You really don't get that. You get a little bit of that in Same Private Ryan and stuff, but, like, you know, packed in and everything. And, like, Steve, you were saying with the distance, you know, they, they did do a good job of, of, of showing that, at least for some I, I think they, they were kind of forced to do that because, you know, the iconic uh, uh, still photos from Omaha Beach are, you know, the ones that, uh, you know that the photographer, uh, yeah, he, mm-hmm. he took, and though because, quite honestly, those are some of the few um, actual photos that survived from Omaha Beach, and so I think that mm-hmm. you know the filmmakers were almost forced to try to recreate that that sort of a uh, view of Omaha Beach, just because people were familiar with it. If you saw any book or any article about Omaha Beach, you tended to see those photos, and that's true to this yeah. day. There just weren't that many still photos taken on Omaha Beach. Um, there were the Coast Guard photos down in the 16th uh, uh, Infantry Regiment sector, and then there were the Robert Capra or Kappa um, photos that were taken there also. And that's about it. There, You know, everything else is naval. You know, it's stuff offshore um, or stuff inland after, you know, after the landings took place. So Yeah. Now, Michael, I've talked to you a little about this as we're on the subject, but there's a bit of controversy about Capra and how many photos he took and what exactly happened. Yeah. I've heard many things like they were rushed to development and got destroyed, kind of like the Rosenthal story with some yeah. of his negatives. You um, know, or did he just take a roll of film and get on a Higgins boat and get the fuck out of there? So you know, his, like, what he claims uh, was that he took, I think, over 100 photos and uh, that his camera got messed up in the water and then they couldn't be developed. Um, I tend to think, believe more, that he probably took you know, as many as he could. Uh, the only, the, I think there, there was 11 that were developed. Uh, and uh, he took probably as many as he could, maybe not in the hundreds, and then jumped back on a Higgins boat because he said, fuck this. I, you know, I'm not going to stick around here. He, he, oh, yeah. he, didn't, he didn't land in the first waves, but there was still a lot of lead flying through the air when he landed. 
and he was a civilian. He had no obligation to to stay there. He could leave if he wanted to. Because, but like, uh, and not this doesn't even come from his testimony. But a lot of people say like, yeah, he was running up and down the beach. He took apparently hundreds of photos, and he took all these photos. And it's like, no, he probably stayed where he was, like where you see all those photos where they were taken. Said this is really not a good idea to be out here. You probably saw some people get killed and jumped back on the 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 landing craft <laughs> that's what i believe there there's actually a a, um, a website devoted to debunking uh his photos yeah um, <clears throat> there's kind of i don't want to call it a movement but there's a number of professional photographers in uh the new york city area who basically doubt a lot of stuff from not only his omaha beach photos but from some of his other photos you know there's the famous photo that he took during the spanish civil war where there's this uh, uh spanish soldier allegedly at the moment of death just after he was shot and falling down and there's a lot of questions as to whether that was authentic but uh some guy up there put up a website where he goes over all of the evidence and he argues that his uh story that the that the extra rolls of film were damaged during processing his story and i think he told it in his book because i have a copy of his book he he told the story that he got back to london and he handed off the rolls of film to a development lab, um, you know, that he was working, he was working for Life Magazine at the time, and that they properly processed one of the rolls, but then the other rolls, when they were drying it after processing it, um, they put it too close to the heat source because they were in a rush, and they basically burned the other um, rolls, however many he claimed, and I forget, I think it was, you know, eight or ten rolls, but um, a number of people have doubted that he took those rolls, that he basically landed took a few shots and then got back on the landing craft and he argued some people have said you know his argument was correct he was there to take news photos he wasn't there as an historian so he had to get back kind of soon you know he he knew he had some iconic shots and he you know and to make a big impact he had to be back there he had to be the first guy back to london with pictures so there were there were good career reasons for him to just take a few pictures uh bring him back to london have them processed and stick them in, you know, stick them in the news, in the newspapers, you know, as soon as possible. And that is what happened. I mean, yeah. his pictures are some of the first pictures to emerge out of D-Day. So you can see why he did it, but it, it does sound as though he kind of, you know, made up stories later on about, you know, the act, the actual event. At least that's what's claimed by some of these um, uh, film historians. Well, like I say, I mean, he wasn't, you know, he probably, he wasn't obligated to stay, like he was a civilian. And, uh, like, um, the Signal Corps, they're part of the military and stuff like that. Um, but uh, another one that's also, uh, that, that was kind of the same thing, but he actually didn't even get onto the beach, was Ernest Hemingway. Um, that he was off the coast of Omaha, and I think maybe he wanted to go in or something. They were like, no, no, we're not doing that. And um, he, he was really screwed up from an accident in uh, England a few weeks earlier. He was in a yeah. drunk driving accident. And I'm in the midst of researching war correspondence for a project I'm working on. I actually read the D-Day section of some books I'm on today. And there were a lot of correspondence on the beaches. Um, Don Whitehead was a very famous guy who was there. And, you know, some of them stayed. And, and some of them were like, you know, after a while, you didn't care if you get hit or not. That was kind of the idea. And that it wasn't about reporting. It was just about getting through it. Um, other guys, like, they were on the beach and did exactly what Capper might have done and said, screw this, and got the hell out of there, you know, like, within a short period of time. And there was one guy, I can't remember his name. He was with a, an Army publicist officer. And they both looked at each other, and they were like, let's get out of here. And somehow they got off the beach very quickly. Yeah. Um, 
So it is interesting. So yeah, there is that civilian conviction, but it wasn't for everyone, you know? Right. It, um, it pisses me off that this stuff, these those parts of the story are never shown in movies, you know? Mm-hmm. that, And it's like, they're, it's clearly a big part of it, you know? Obviously, yeah, we want to see the objectives accomplished or whatever, you know, but uh, stuff like that, it's just as interesting or it can be shown, you know, to be interesting. Um, that's uh, that's one thing I've always wanted to see more in these war movies are like, you know, the Signal Corps or, you know, correspondents, pho- photographers, things like that. They do one good job with this where they have some war correspondents on, I think, Sword Oh, Beach, yeah, on Sword you know, Beach, yeah, and, the They're all complaining that, that nobody will let them use their radio, which was a big thing because all these guys got these amazing stories. And then they couldn't send them, you know, to the states. Ah, but London they had and their stuff. pigeons. And, <clears throat> pigeon power. <Yeah. laughs> and there's a lot of funny stories from Normandy where, depending on where you got your pigeons, if they were good or not, a lot of the British pigeons flew towards the German lines, and they never got there. I think there were only there was one pigeon that made it back to the war ministry within 56 hours of the landings, and that guy got like the scoop. You know, he was famous. But the other thing too is a lot of these broadcasters, because that was the new big medium, broadcasting from the front, they would have scheduled windows. And a lot of times, due to aeronautics or whatever, a guy was fell asleep. He wouldn't pick up the broadcast and retransmit it to New York. So they would be like on the front in Normandy and talking about, here I am with British troops or whatever, and it wouldn't go anywhere. He'd be talking to himself, literally. He had no idea that he wasn't live. Um, and also in London, they were told they weren't allowed to um, retransmit broadcasts for the first three weeks of the invasion. So there's a ton of amazing broadcasts that go nowhere because they went through army channels. And they were, you know subjected to not being redistributed or rebroadcasted but the navy guys they had a different way of going about it there's a famous guy who was on the, the night of the 6th and the 7th was watching german stuka's bomb you know the fleet and everything and he was talking live to america and it was one of the best you know well-remembered um, broadcasts of the war so you get that but you get guys on the beach that can't get any other stories out you know they're just they're, literally they're, languishing they had much better radios on the ships than they did ashore they had tremendous oh, yeah. problems with the radios on shore. But I forgot all about that, Brian, actually. The, the part with oh. the, 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 the damn traitors. Yeah, that part. It, yep, that was great. And you hear about it a lot. You know, it, it's funny. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, anything mechanical, give it a whack. <laughs> yeah, when that whole thing lurched forward, but, uh, it almost killed the dog in the take, too. So, yeah. <laughs> Probably. Oh, yeah, you see yes. it lurch, and the guy goes, yeah, right. like, tries to yank the dog stand. away before it gets crushed. Yeah. We got a we got a second yeah, dog, yeah. right? <laughs> Somebody painted a spot on this guy. Um, well, I think if you guys want, we can go over to IMFDB and talk a bit about the firearms that they use compared to the original. And uh, that's fascinating. I point to Hawk. I really look forward to reading your book, Steve. Well, it's got a lot of detail that hadn't come out before. I was able to find some German accounts, but the other thing is, is that I I tried to approach Point to Hawk from a broader framework. You know, as I say, covering the air attacks. Um, covering the naval bombardment, uh, covering issues that... Usually when you hear about Point Duhok, you only hear about it from the Rangers' perspective, which is important. I mean, it's the central element. But if you add in some of the other details, um, that makes a big difference. Yeah, no, yeah, it's interesting. You, you paint a very good picture in just a, a small conversation. You know, As you said, it's for me, it's always take the cliffs, we took the guns out, and we get relieved. But none of this it was the number one target in Europe You know, pre-D-Day. That, that's fascinating. Um, so yeah, guys, as always, we're on, uh, IMFTV and let's take a look at some of the, movie. the weapons they used. Yeah. So good old Luger. I've Classic never heard Luger. of it. I don't know what it is. <laughs> What's a Luger? <laughs> uh, Webley. I swear. I think uh, Eddie Albert's character, quote, Colonel Thompson. I think he's supposed to be Charles Canham or someone like that. Right. You know? Yeah. 
that's kind of he kind of fills that role of Canham. I think they wanted to show an officer getting killed though, and you know, so it creates some problems. I guess, yeah. It that part's kind of strange. It's like why why did we have to have his character die just because it's tragic? I guess. You know? I, I guess so. They wanted to show that the <laughs> burden was carried by the officers as well as the men, but okay, mm-hmm. yeah, I see that. But Here's they would they would have been better, you know, bumping off some captains or majors, not a colonel. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Look at that. Look at that freaking fake regal bow back there, about to fall off the cliff. That's crazy. <laughs> I like the one scene where they drive up the hill. That casemate looked pretty good. It kind of looked remind like, me of the photo, you know, of the the famous one where all the guys are saying on it. It's a, yeah, a vaguely vaguely represents an R six seven seven. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess they built those. I mean, they must have been built out of like I don't know sheetrock or something. What uh, the 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 yeah, Atlantic wall. The, yeah, yeah, the fake bunkers. Yeah. Hey, that's probably just plywood. It's probably just plywood with uh, just painted. Yeah, yeah. yeah. styrofoam. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> little I do always love styrofoam. seeing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I do always love seeing the M1 Thompsons in war movies with you know that without the the ears on the back. Oh yeah, the no, no uh, sight protectors. Yeah. So, yep. And that first aid pouch is still wrong. <laughs> I think it's like a. It's, it's just a it's bag. Like a sewing kit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was the one funny thing too when. When the uh, the wounded pilot at the end, he was just like, "Oh, my morphine's wearing off." Well, he had morphine in his first aid kit for the airborne one. Yeah, <laughs> they weren't they didn't come in the Carlisle bandages, but they came in the special ones. Yeah, so. it became a problem actually later on. Oh, this, oh, this this is one of the most blatant scenes is when Sal Minio gets killed because the German mimics the the cricket sound <laughs> with his rifle. I've owned many candy eights, and I've never been yeah. able to make one do that. So <laughs> no, Mike did a whole video on it. Um, but oh, uh, funny. Uh, yeah, it's it's ridiculous. Um and that's the one like criticism that I you universally hear about this movie is the part where the German mimicking the crickets. Well, the crickets are, 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 are probably thanks to this movie get way overblown with airborne lore, I, you know. I, I, I will there. I will say my favorite thing of the whole movie honestly is the room where they're introducing the cricket and it's nothing you can I, I I thought my TV was broken. Like, I thought something happened wrong, and then, <laughs> and then it stopped, and he's like, all right, everyone stop. And it was like, of course, it's a bunch of 18 to 20-year-olds going click, 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 You know, right. like, I, you thought that I was thought just that like was, a mess I, well, up No, I thought that was just a, a genuine moment, because I could totally see, like, everyone going, here, everyone have these and, like, mess with them for five minutes. And it's just a cacophony <laughs> of a bunch of people going click, 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 well, click, and that's, They were a toy. They, they were, but they were not nearly as as loud yeah, as they yeah, are in yeah, the, yeah. the movie too. <laughs> yeah. <you know? laughs> I think the version they used in the film was actually one they used because they had the brass ones, and it depends on the, what unit you're in, a regiment. It, it gets pretty crazy, but they, the frog looking ones were used by someone, I believe. Okay, it's 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 become a cottage industry in France. If you go to any of the museums on the Normandy coastline. That's a popular tourist item. It still is, <laughs> and I, I I'm sure it's because of the movie. Yeah, I, I absolutely think it is because that's you. This is where you see it. I think maybe you see it in Band of Brothers in one scene. Um, but yeah, this yeah. movie is just all yeah. The just... crickets, the crickets were made famous by this movie. Yeah. Hmm. See, so yeah, look at yep, that shit. shooting Thompson's coming down, <laughs> burning his hand on the barrel as he shoots. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't hurt for the first thirty rounds. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's point to Hawk right there. This movie, yep. yeah, this movie has tons of Thompsons. Mm-hmm. Red Buttons character. Goddamn bells. <clears throat> okay, now we oh, have the oh, M1A1. 
Yep, with Paul. the side protector. Oh, Paul Anka's <laughs> helmet yeah. conveniently falls off, so we know it's him. <laughs> yep. I don't see a greaser. Yes, and the, some of the British commandos have. Oh, um, you're right. Yeah. Oh, wow. I don't think it's oh. ever fired, but. <laughs> good old Sean Connery. That's a very unflattering <laughs> image of Sean Connery. <laughs> a very young Sean Connery. Right. Yeah. yeah. Pre James Bond. Yeah, that's yeah. Pre James mm-hmm. Bond by quite a so bit. So I was I was gonna I was gonna ask about this. Would these guys be using the paratrooper variant of the Sten? There was a mix at the time. Okay. Um, it, it's hard to say, but twos are definitely used. Um, by the the British Airborne, especially glider riders too, because there is a bit of a difference. So the, the big thing at this time is the fives didn't have the front forearm. That was kind of a like a summer of forty four thing. I thought the so one with the, the pistol grip. with the wire um, stock. That, I thought that was Canadian. No, that's not at all. Okay. There's just different ones for a three and ones for a two. Technically, there's a T stock and, and a skeleton stock. Okay. Uh, there's a lot of uh, small changes, um, but they are the correct stems. I know so little about colonial shit. Or Commonwealth stuff. You come yeah, see, yeah. I don't even know what to call it. The American seventeen hundred. The threes have the T's mainly, uh, for the most part. Okay. Yeah, you can't yeah. fit. You can fit some skeleton stocks on a T, but I think they're early, early production, or whatever. But I didn't notice the three at all until now. It's interesting. I guess some of the French look like they have them. The threes were made by a toy company um, for stamping. That's why they're different. They were made by I think Lead Toys or something. Noise. Yeah. See, that's the thing I'm talking about. Yeah, the Mark Fives, the, the iconic ones, because of a bridge too far, basically. Mm-hmm. And that's also the coolest looking Sten. That's why I bought mine. You have one of those. I have a Mark Five. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, good old MP4. Just the bad. other thing we see all the time for this film. Oh, uh, if you got Germans, <laughs> you have to have a Schmeiser. Yeah. Yep. That's the that's the freaking '60s for you. You know. I think the the pinnacle of 1960s MP40 usage was like uh, where Eagles there. That <laughs> so I think or every uh, German has one. That or <laughs> yeah. the, the Great Escape. Like every mm-hmm. s- every century has an MP40. Right. Yeah, Point to Hawk. <laughs> that barbed wire, by the way, is still there on Point to Hawk, and uh, oh, really? a lot of people think it's original. They're like, "Wow." This German wire still oh, here. The movie. Oh. It's like no, it's from the movie because it's not authentic German wire where they have barbs every inch. You know, mm-hmm. like actual German wire back then was much fiercer than it than it was. You know, I mean that's post-war. I mean that's nuts to think oh, about because yeah. they would never let anyone film on Point Du Hoc now. Yeah, today, yeah. today, no, yeah. no, never. Oh, they're getting terribly well, strict over there. They're fencing off everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, the first time mm-hmm. I went there, you could walk anywhere, and now everything's fenced off. You can't go into the bunkers. Except for the observation bunker through, you know, uh, the public walkway and everything else has fences around it to stop you from getting close. It's, um, you know, really a shame. I understand why they're doing it, but it's it's a shame. It spoils the experience. Yeah. Um, Steve, I wanted to ask you one thing about the Point to Hawk. Um, the grapnels that the uh, Rangers used, were they fired from mortars on their landing crafts, or did they actually have separate mortars that they would set up on the beach and fire? They, they had both. Um, the majority okay. of them were fired off of the LCAs. Each LCA had six launchers, and uh, two each of the six launchers had different type of rope. Um, but they could either dismount, two of the smaller launchers they could dismount, and in some cases they had an additional separate launcher that could be brought ashore with like a, a thinner rope. Um, so, so the the stuff where they're mostly sh- uh, firing on shore is not really accurate. Most of the grapnels would have been fired off the LCAs, but of course they didn't have the proper stuff for that, so they used the um, the shore-fired ones. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
That's kind of what I figured. Yeah. Okay. Very briefly seen as the M1, which also Vandervoort horrible had, chin cup on that helmet. Oh my uh, god. Yeah. What the hell was that? Um, uh, Post war. <laughs> Vandervoort also would have carried an M1A1 carbine, not an M1 Garand. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, John Wayne is the only one with an original M42, or at least one that looks like it. All the other paratroopers yeah. have M43s. Yeah, the pockets well, are too long. The, the slanted pockets. The, it's funny you say it because like all of the kind of like the major guys. Like, Robert Mitchum has an M41, but every other soldier yeah. wears a M43. So, yeah, yeah well, it's, like, it's weird that, like, they'll give... The, you see, like, some correct shit, like, sprinkled in with the main actors, but not the other guys. There are photos of guys on the 7th over Omaha Beach with M43s, very rarely. There was a few generals that had them and some replacements. Um, really? I wrote a whole story about this, but... You know, so slowly the forty-three jacket does show up in Normandy yeah. very early on. It's not till late late June that it really shows up in numbers in early July. But um, yeah, D-Day, not really. It would have been <laughs> nice know, to see some troops. It would have been nice to see some HBTs. The Fourth Infantry at mm. Utah impregnated uh, ones. Yeah, yeah, tons of HBTs. Yeah, and um, so it would have been cool to see that. <laughs> there was there was there was there was one year. Um, a bunch of guys uh, when they did the whole when they do uh, D-Day Conneaut every year. Someone, a, a small group of guys, came in with impregnated HBTs during the summer with it being ninety-five degrees with like eighty <laughs> percent humidity, and those guys were like dead on the beach so fast because the impregnated HBTs just would not breathe on top of all the gear. That's, that's, People use that's the whole idea. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> P- people use canvac or uh, yeah, paraffin they, wax they, in reenacting they, to get the look, it and looks it looks good, good but, but they were, they, it doesn't by work. the end of it, it all like come off in the water, and it was just like all like just like because they can't get the original uh, impregnant stuff because it probably causes like fucking brain tumors now. There, so there are some uniforms that exist still today that have uh, some of the impregnate on them. Um, I think one or two of them are actually at the Dead Man's Corner Museum in Normandy, and it looks very interesting. It's like a yellowish yeah. color. It, it makes the, the, you know, and generally, you know, American uniforms weren't khaki. They were olive drab. There was a, a swatch, you know. They were more green. They were more khaki, depending on the batch. So it really made it, like, this very brownish, strange I, color. Yeah. There are some color photos well, the, of the The guys, more sun dyed it gets, the more, like... I have this too, um, you know. true, but they're very I have brown. a. Yeah. I when I was very very young in the hobby, I thought it'd be cool. I wanted to get like a, uh, what was it? The wool, um, where the, the wood the like the wool hoods, uh, for the gas, gas impregnated, impregnated yeah. hoods. Well, yeah. I wanted to get one that wasn't impregnated, but they only had ones that were impregnated for like ten bucks. Now they're actually really hard to find, but damn, but, you're but I well no I. I, w- I got it. I'm like, I'm going to wear this. And it like, came to the time to wear it. And I'm like, no, I'm not. This smells like chlorine <laughs> and it and leaves like a weird texture on everything I touch. Nah, I'm good. Like, there's a, there's every time I've picked up like an M1 helmet, like an original one with an actual, with the, the correct uh, fiberglass mm. liner in it and smell, it's like, my God, it smells like a dead body in there. You <laughs> well, know, like, it's just, just they, they do have a the, must. The, yeah. the impregnation mm-hmm. stuff, it smells like chlorine. Like it's like the worst right. smell in the history of the world, and it's like, ugh. and it's like, you choose, yeah, yeah must exactly, yeah. So like, it, it was, <laughs> it, it, it was, it was very interesting to like go and like feel that, and like, so I kind of have an idea of that in pretty stuff. Um, in terms of the, of the uniforms though, and twenty ninth oriented, it, like it was hard. Like they didn't like have any. Correct me if I'm wrong. There weren't really many. Um, they didn't have. Um, 
Gaspisards on anyone, so because normally we would have a Gaspisard with the insignia, and they would cover that up. That was the whole mo with that, and it would be forty ones, wolves and forty ones for the twenty ninth. And anyone who I thought was a twenty ninth, I couldn't even tell through the whole thing because they're all in the same. Because they got those yeah. Well, on. like well, they yeah. didn't really have that many of those in there to begin with. I'd have to go back and look. I those, I was having a hard time. Those bastards. It. Those bastards crumble off, don't they? Like they're just yeah, they're paper, um, yeah. Yeah. I don't have mine here, but I a, a lot I, of them were British. They were like they were I different have, color um, too. I gave <laughs> up trying to um, keep buying them every year because you wear them once and they just disintegrate. So I have right. one that's like woven <laughs> cloth that you can't tell until you're really up close. <laughs> that way, I save myself probably over a thousand dollars of fifteen years of reenacting. Because every year I'd have to, or yeah. every two events I have to buy one. Because <laughs> it's like uh, this thing's like garbage now. Um, but yeah. Um, so to just just one more look at this photo right here. The paratroopers—they don't look like they have the paratrooper bales on their helmets. No. Well, yeah. what's funny is that that wasn't necessarily wrong because they, they had a really big problem sourcing D bales, especially right. ahead of D Day. So yeah. most of the paratrooper helmets during the war, or Fleet Hundred First and stuff, were actually fixed bales that they taped jump liners into. Right. And if you look at original photos, you'll see tape either all around the brim or four places or five places. Um, again, just trying to make it work. Bayonet lug. Bayonet lug back yeah. there. That's a fucking <laughs> eyesore. Yeah. They even made some paratrooper helmets uh, by modifying them by putting mess kit straps in them. And I actually oh. have one of those. So, yeah, it was a, technically the first Fubal Veils. But, hey, can yeah. you go up, Nate? Uh, Look at the cardboard tank, the cardboard uh, cutout tanks back there. <laughs> oh, <laughs> on the beach? Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. I didn't realize that. Hey, at least they got the log ramps going the right direction. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> Unlike SP. And the telemines look great, too. Yeah, yeah. They're, oh, that's a good point. They are the wrong way. Huh. Yeah, the, the, I didn't the, realize that. The mine log, the log, the mine uh, posts. They're a little high, um, but uh, but yeah, the the, ra- the the log ramps are. Granted, are it would they were landing on low tide, so like, so technically, right? Oh yeah, you're right. That's that's the, a very yes. high tide. Yeah, that's like that's like it's that's very right. that's very like a high. Pacific, <laughs> that's like a Pacific Ocean high tide right there. So yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's 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 if a plane's gonna <laughs> land there, it's gonna be doomed. But uh, I don't yeah. know about a landing craft. Oh yeah, got your French resistance bombshell. <laughs> Bayonet lugs. Yep. Post war carbines. Yep. No M1A1 yeah, They don't have any carbines. paratroopers. You're right. Yeah, yeah no paratrooper carbines. Uh, guest appearance by Roddy McDowell. Yeah. Yeah. Before he was Caesar. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. That or, rank on the helmet, though. <laughs> yeah. This is cool. I think he carried something else on actual D-Day. I always he heard he have. carried an M1 Garand. Yeah, it even says it right here. Yeah, it was, yeah. yeah. I think it was a Model 70 or something. Yeah. And you can see in this image right here the... Uh, the Brits have a lot of M1A1 Thompsons. If you scroll down. Oh, really? Oh, fun. yeah. See, so oh, well, some right of the there. commandos did use those, though. Yeah, but so. it would have been the M1928A1. Yeah. From you know, from from Lend-Lease. Um mm-hmm. Also, Bill Millen, uh, the guy playing the bagpipes, is like this sixty-year-old man, which in real life he was like twenty, I think, <laughs> when he landed on uh, on sword playing the bagpipes. I, Nathan called me last night. I was watching this, and he goes, "Is that Black Bear in the background?" He's like, "God damn it!" <laughs> yeah, well, I knew you were at the part with the bagpipes because I could hear it through the phone. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was funny. I we uh, I uh, back in uh, this would have been 
2008, we had a bunch of guys from England come over because uh, back in the early 2000s, a bunch of U.S. guys from my unit would go over to England, and they would babysit them, and then they would go make the, the trip across the channel to Normandy and do this whole stuff. And so they were coming over here to do a couple of reenactments because it's easier for them to do blanks and everything like and crazy here versus there. And uh, <laughs> and we're like standing in like this is back when Forty Town Gap was still going on. We're standing outside the barracks. And all of a sudden, like, I start hearing, like, the faint, like, like piping of a bagpipe. And Paul, the guy who's next to me, he's from, like, you know, England. And he just goes, fucking things follow me everywhere. Fuck. <laughs> he's like, fucking king. <laughs> oh, can't like, take I can't that anymore. Damn them. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> I wouldn't blame him, dude. I hate those things. <laughs> he was just being like, honest. fucking bagpipes. <laughs> <laughs> There's always one of the reenactments. There's always one. <laughs> okay, now this is played something by interesting. A fat the, the Irish, the... or, sorry, played by a fat Asian guy. It's really. <laughs> <laughs> the the guy on the left right there has the uh, uh, bandolier, you know, uh, around mm-hmm. his chest. Did the British use those too? Because I know the Americans that that's like an iconic thing. The, across yes. The... Okay. So, the British pouches, if you look at them, mm-hmm. the I forget which side, but one side should have like two or three bread mags and the other side has two bandoliers in it and okay. what you do is you you take a, your end blocks out of the bandolier and you just pull it out so that's okay. the idea you get two bandoliers you stuff it in there and then you go through them so yes you very rarely see them worn like that um but the brits definitely had bandoliers okay interesting <laughs> the only time <laughs> the mauser is used in the movie is the for cricket this. <laughs> clicking candy eight. yeah, yeah. <clears throat> oh ma- interesting vz24 oh good Gert Frobley is that's interesting. I did see some of the beginning um, of the film. Yeah, when they're bayoneting the hay, there's yeah. some straight bolts. So that stuff. that scene right there, go up, Nate. That scene's interesting because that was actually filmed where the real Pluscat's uh, uh, WN was WN fifty nine, and hmm. it's right in there where they filmed that 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 scene. Uh, uh, it's just it's kind of like a little farther east of Omaha Beach. It's not technically part of Omaha Beach, but. Uh, uh, that's where his actual post would have been, was where they filmed this specific scene right here. And uh, the guy in the house, the French guy, who's like going crazy when the mm-hmm. uh, the bombing mm-hmm. starts, I think that's supposed to be uh, Michael Hardelay, and uh, who is a, a civilian in Vierville-sur-Mer at Omaha Beach. And uh, his, from what I've read, his reaction was definitely not that when the, the bombing <laughs> opened up. He was very scared. <laughs> so just interesting. Yeah, well, they really wanted to get the, you know, liberation is coming out of the right. French. He was and, also, yeah. like, 30-something years old. He was not, like, a 70-year-old man. No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Casting over the place. Too old, too young. Yeah. Uh, G-98s. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, that there wasn't as... Uh, so 24, wasn't 29. A oh. Okay. Yeah. Maybe it's supposed Maybe. to be. Well, no, they, they definitely yeah. use 24, 29. That's, those are actually really good machine guns. So, it's very, face, it's man. very similar profile, mm-hmm. but yeah, this this is correct. This is a twenty four twenty nine because the 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 twenty sixes have mm-hmm. uh, 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 ribbed barrels all the way from start to top. So, mm. yeah, those pre war box fed. What's mag. up with his belt? Do you see that? Like, it doesn't. Oh, look right. it, it's not a real belt. That's yeah. funny. Yeah, it's like some leather. It's like strap a Civil War belt with a, with a German <laughs> belt buckle glued on. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's like a, a regular German belt buckle, but like Jimmy rigged to a leather strap. <laughs> That's interesting. 
funny. Yep, Brens. There's the Bren. Good old Sean Connery. Mm-hmm. And the life vests are cool to see too. That how they're all a little different. Mm-hmm. Even Co- they have uh, Coda in one of the parts. Like I like this one better. Yeah, you know the, the life belt. Oh, and the bicycles. I didn't notice that. That's cool. The folding that's bicycles. A, yeah. Yeah. The, that's a big part of it, mm-hmm. <laughs> or at least the original operation. Yeah, you see those in a number of photos. They were supposed to bicycle. That's right. There were there were some mm-hmm. pre uh, go, uh, good full auto Brens too. So. Mm-hmm. Or sorry, full auto. They had um, bar. Sorry. Yeah. B A R. Just yeah. looking at the Brens. They definitely didn't have ducks at Point to Hawk. <laughs> no, actually, they did. They were trying really? to. They were trying to land uh, ladders. The ducks were fitted with ladders. There were supposed supposed to be four of them, but two of them sank on the way in. <laughs> wow. Yeah, because if I yeah I remember correctly, there were there were ducks, but I wasn't too sure where they were. Yeah. There were. Didn't they? Didn't <laughs> their ladders have um, Vickers guns on them? Yep. yep yeah. They had three. Well, not uh, not the regular. The the K gun. Mm. Oh wow. <laughs> and that's they what that three mounted on the top. They that, they were using. Um, London Fire Department ladders, you know, extension ladders, like you'd find in a fire truck. They had wow. those mounted in the back bay of the duck. Yeah, and the, huh. the Vickers gun on them, isn't that what that famous photo of the one stuck in the ground with the helmet on it? That's, yeah. Uh, yep. That's at yep. Point to Hawk. It's one of the Vickers from the ladders, yeah. Right. Oh, that is a Vickers K. Holy shit. Yep. Wow. Mine's been in my blown. high school, they had, a, they had a mural of that, and it was so badly drawn. It, like, it's just a funky-looking gun anyway. Yeah. So, like, I always thought it was some French thing, like, What's that Victor or something that they use in the Air Force, the side-loaded magazine? I thought it was like one of those crazy things. <laughs> no, but... it's a Vickers. Huh. Wow, I'll eat my words on that. That's fascinating. It's taken off one of those ladders and then put up there, yeah. Yeah. Good old BAR. The MG42 sounds like a Browning 50 cal in the oh, movie. Yeah. It's like <laughs> boom, 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 boom. In this particular scene, the rate of fire is far below that. <laughs> I wonder if they're MG3s. They're probably yeah, all MG3. Because yeah. they had a lower firing rate. Mm-hmm. And so that could have been... You can tell it's a lower firing rate, but the sound effect they use is even lower. Yeah. It's yeah. like... Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> it's the M242. Yeah. Yep. Post-war tank, post-war 50 cal mount. <laughs> oh, is it a post-war tank? Well, well, well no, it's, it's a late war, I should say. Uh, Sorry. What movie it's were we watching pressure. where the... the, the the feed tray off to the side didn't even have an ammo cannon. It just had the Kelly's heroes. Yeah. Kelly's heroes. heroes. The bullets yeah. are just sitting yeah. in the, the blanks are just sitting <laughs> in the cradle. They're yeah. stacked in the cradle. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That thing's not going to fall out. <laughs> yeah. The quad 50 yeah, being used by mounts. the Germans. Yeah. See, that's, uh, that's totally, um, uh, sur mer. And that's not where they filmed part of uh, Saint Private Ryan, right? Because I no. remember the casemate and stuff. Okay. No, no, except they, that they they use Long Sermer as kind of the basis for the bunkers in the Viraville draw. Yeah. So okay. it looks mm-hmm. it looks rather like Long Sermer, but it's not. They didn't film there. They just use they use those particular bunkers as kind of a an, an inspiration. That model, hmm. yeah. Oh, look, and you can see one of those uh, those uh, turrets up there, APXR up yep, there. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's mm. that's one of those moving ones that seems to show up in several scenes. <laughs> you could probably, oh yeah, you're right. Yeah. You could probably a, a, a gust of wind. Of a gust of wind blows. It yeah, I, I think those were yeah, right. dummied up out of something. You know, whether it was plywood or whatever. You can see the you can see the tiles you know, here. It's interesting. Yeah. I believe that the, these 50 calibers are blank adapted because if you look over the the barrels, there's a shroud, and that's something. Um, it's very hard to blank adapt the 50 cal today. They have this like tri thing yeah. that's huge and it goes over it. 
Yeah. But I think this is the old school of blank adapting it, and they painted it black to try to get over it. Because looking at it quickly, it almost looks like a 20 millimeter Arikaden, like that they have later in when the I, casino and stuff. When I but, went to go film a combat training, I saw those, the 50 cals with the tri thing at the, on yeah. it. I thought it was a minigun when I saw that. <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah, it's very hard. A lot of pressure to, to keep and hold, but huh. Mm-hmm. Must be the old school way of doing yeah. it. <laughs> now this <laughs> is accurate. This is accurate having the MG08 in some parts. You know. Yep. Love the sled. I also yeah. love the or the Orlicon. The, they hey, yeah. have that mm-hmm. in there. Well, the French heavily used those before the war. Because mm-hmm. it was just a it was designed. Oh, that's funny. It's a there's the sled. <laughs> yep, just sitting there. With with the there's it on the yeah. There's the barrel. Yeah. There's the shrub. That's, uh, that's a Pegasus. Some of the gun Very emplacements cool. are still there at Pegasus. I tried to. I... Well, it's a, it's a big museum now, I believe, right? Yeah. And they have the original bridge. Well, they moved the original bridge away. There's a brand mm-hmm. new bridge there, but they kept the old one and they they moved it onto the shore near near where the Pegasus Museum uh, uh, museum itself is located now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I swear to God, dude the the this is a staple of like 1950s, 60s war movies is the super bazooka being yep. used for the M9. It's just yeah. like, no. <laughs> we we did watch a movie where it was correct, though, in uh, Fixed Bayonets. That's right, <laughs> yeah, because it was Korea, yeah. yeah. But, uh, but no, you always see this is wrong. in war yep. movies from this time, the super bazooka being used instead of the correct uh, M9 or the you know yep. M1A1. Great to see the Piot as well. And they you know, for... it actually does fire a projectile. That was pretty impressive. Yeah. Again, this scene was really good, you know, just as its own thing. It, the, the casino scene itself just stands out so well. Yeah. So. Yeah. C- cinematically, all those long shots, those long helicopter shots that, oh, that do yeah. a really, really good job impressive. of showing yeah. the mass numbers and all the squibs going off like that. Like, like you have to take a lot of that into consideration of the of just how impressive that is to make everything go all at the same time, all right. Because if it doesn't go right, it's noticeable, and you have to do it all again, or just accept the fact. Yeah. That it didn't turn out right. It seems like, it seems really you know really spontaneous. It doesn't seem rehearsed. Mm. Orlikon, yep, I, I love Orlikon. those things. Yeah, my grandfather. This was uh, his uh, weapon on uh, battle stations on LST on yeah. the fan deck. That's not the German <clears throat> version of it, but that's still cool because mm-hmm. the Germans yep. used a version of it too. Potato masher. <laughs> yep. <laughs> this part was a little weird Mark when he twos. when he pulls the grenade out. He pulls like a little paper thing off the top of it. I don't know. You can't see it in this, but uh, oh, I think that was tape. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like yeah, medical tape, which they would do. Yeah. Yeah. This is before they had safety pins on top of the grenades. That was a post-war thing. Mm-hmm. So Mills bomb, Bangalore's. Yeah. These. Yeah. Those are actually pretty good. They look like the real thing. The. Uh, Mm-hmm. I remember, like, the movie The Big Red One or just, you know, some sheet metal pipes that they're using. <laughs> Number seven. Right, yeah. Number this, eight. This no. scene is so like, stupid. Like, like, they are, like, they are, um, they, they are very simple, but they're also very, uh, like, for nerds like us, when we see them, we know when they're incorrect. Right, yeah, and, you just and, know. And, yeah, you just know. And, like, so, like, for me, like, we, we have, like, we we had someone who had like the fish who had like who had like a, a a connection with the original with someone who had original ones. We got the measurements for that. We took a bunch of pictures and then we have replicated them all out of either metal piping PVC P, or 
PCP, Jesus Christ, PVP, PCP is something else. <laughs> PVP, yeah, <laughs> PVP is uh, PVP and getting all the right sizes, and then you know exactly like what it is, and we have the right length and the thing. We have stoppers, so we put the the. Um, that was the one thing I was surprised they were actually laying out wire, because for the most part, from what I knew, it was pull the tab and run. But, uh, I think I you mean, can. I think you can do it. Uh, either one yeah either way um i figured yeah, yeah. but i i'm just i was i I'll, was again, i was yeah. kind of bewildered by the laying the wire and going well back. i just pull the fucker and run like we said this is a combination of coda's bangalore action and then the 121st engineer battalion blowing up this the, the uh, anti-tank wall which they use demolitions for not bangalores to do that um but uh, uh, one thing you don't really see in movies in terms of the Bangalore is that they have like a bullet head end. So you can, yeah, like, the end push, cap. Yeah, yep. push it yep. through. But you usually never see that. I, um, and the, and them somewhere. coming apart as you're pushing it up is absolutely mm-hmm. realistic. And right, yeah, because it's just slots yeah. in there, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're using the moment. You're yeah. pushing. You're just hoping that you keep constant pressure that you don't break that connection three lengths up. Yeah. That you just push mm-hmm. it up forward. So, um, you had the pack, pack 40. Pack 40, Pack 40 in the base. Yep. Zeke Heil. Michael's favorite line. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so ridiculous. Uh, oh, I'm glad they included this. Yeah, Longester Mare. I think that's the most famous battery. Oh, uh, yeah, well, because also <laughs> it's, it's not mm-hmm. fucked up. It's, like, really intact, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. As, it's as one, it's much one as of the it... only batteries that still has the real guns in it. Yeah. Hmm. Those naval uh, those naval guns. Um, Was there is there a reason why... That that was left in there. I think that the French government allowed it because they considered it an historic site. Okay. Whereas mm. they dismantled all the other. I've been all along large chunks of the Atlantic Wall. And there's practically no other guns still surviving. Um, it, they just they just scrapped all that stuff right after the war, and they yeah. they did seem to treat treat this as a museum from fairly early on. Okay. Um, it is cool to see in this movie, unlike Saving Private Ryan. That the fortifications do have camouflage paint and nets over them, um, which is how it would have been uh, for the most part. Uh, I, I was happy, like at, at uh, Point to Hawk. I mean, I don't know if this was the case for the actual Point to Hawk, but you see nets everywhere and stuff like that. So it's pretty cool to see that. See, that's that's the fire control uh, bunker right there, the light stand at uh, Longester Mare. This is a real historical battlefield. Let's blow yeah. the cliffs up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It actually did fire its guns on D-Day. <laughs> you know, you see way back there in the background, that's actually the real Omaha site. Really? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, maybe you can't even see it. Like I said, this is just east of it. So Right. But no, let's fuck it up for the movie. <laughs> oh, M1. Beg for forgiveness, not permission. So Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 81 stovepipe. I don't remember. Oh, Germans are using them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, and that's the last of it. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Well, tons of weapons, support weapons, indirect fire, you know, yeah. a lot to tell. So, well, I guess we can move into closing thoughts. Yeah, man. Um, yeah. Who wants to go first? Nate, you go first. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> I mean, I've been, I've been quiet the most tonight because I've just, I'm letting the two or three other people who can who can who know this stuff back to front and regurgitate thoughts a lot better than I can I mean like I'm me being a 15 year old or 15 oh Jesus 15 year reenactor um you know it is it is um 
I've I've accumulated lots of stories from veterans and stuff like that, and um, you know, they were they're wonderful stories that you know they a lot of fun memories, but they also shared a lot of the painful ones throughout the years of getting to know these guys. Unfortunately, a lot of them have passed away. Um, actually, I think all of them have uh, unfortunately passed away. Uh, I lost the last two, I think, during COVID. So it was um. But but those stories and, and and the stuff from these guys are are always stick in my head. And the one thing I I got from watching this movie was there is a caliber to this movie that is a lot bigger than most. Um, you know, yeah, they get things wrong. Yeah, it's 1960s and stuff like that. But but it but it shows the, the caliber of the whole entire scale that they try to get on film really does show. And I I think it's again I think a lot with these movies it's a great intro to learning a subject on your own to to see this thing and then dive in head into it head first you know all of us had to start somewhere you know and and i think it's i think it's very very uh it's a very good film for that reason to really kind of sink your teeth in to get to knowing stuff get to understand the subject matter get to see how it's presented in a huge magnificent scale because it really is i mean we'll never see those massive amounts of people doing all of everything in one shot i don't think ever really again because i think cinema doesn't isn't doing that anymore it's it's relying on cg relying on you know um not cheaper methods but i think i would say more forgivable methods of showcasing film and stuff like that so i think this film really is a a a really really strong piece of film for what it is and uh i think i'm going to give it uh about eight point i think i'm going to give it an eight point that Let's give it an eight out of ten. Scream, Mel Gibson's for the whole thing. I think it just it does everything really well. There are some things it flounders on, um, but there's some things I'm not going to dock it for. But overall, I think it does really well. It is uh, from the conversation from last episode. It is too long for me, <laughs> but but you know it it is it is still really good. So yeah, I, I would say an eight out of ten for me. Nice. <clears throat> what about you, Steve? Um, for its time, it was a great movie. I, I do think it's very dated. Um, you know, a film like that wouldn't be done that way these days. Um, you know, the comic bits are, in some cases, kind of jarring. Um, all of that style was very common back in the 60s. You know, you have these battle scenes, and suddenly somebody comes up and starts cracking jokes and stuff, and in, in a real-life situation, you can't really see that happening. But that was... That was Zanuck's style. I mean, he was trying to mix that, you know, combination of tragedy and comedy to keep in the, the, the general audience. I mean, this is not aimed at military history geeks. This is aimed at your general audience. And so he used filming techniques or filming styles that would work with the general audience, not with a bunch of specialists. But I, I think that, you know, after the Vietnam era films, um, you know, which got a lot more nitty gritty, it would be very difficult to do a film in this style anymore, you know, and Saving Private Ryan is a reflection of that. Saving Private Ryan came after all those Vietnam era films and um, that just changed the way that Hollywood depicts war. So, so it's fine, fine for its time. It is a good introduction to D-Day. It's especially for if, for an audience who doesn't know very much about D-Day, I think it is a good introduction. It shows you all of the, or not all, but most of the major points about the uh, about the battle. So I think it's very good from that standpoint. But it is it is a very dated movie. Hmm. So if you had to rate it for zero out of ten, what do you think you'd give it? 
Um, I find hard to give those kind of ratings. If I, you know, when I saw it in the 1960s, I probably would have given it a 10 out of 10. And now I'd maybe give it a six out of 10. I don't, I don't think it's the, I don't think it's one of the best World War II movies of the period. I'll give you a comparison. The World War II movie from, from that period and actually came out even earlier was Battleground. You know, the, the one about the glider infantry up at Bastogne. That I thought was a much more honest movie. And I, th I think it still holds up well as being very realistic um, and um, a lot closer to reality. But Battleground didn't try to be one of these big epics. It didn't try to show, um, you know, the battle on this scale. So its ambitions were much smaller. But um, I think it holds up better with time, whereas I think that uh, Longest Day, although at the time I think was a great movie, by now it's, it's become more dated because of its style. So maybe today, like I say, maybe a seven out of ten or a six out of ten. Yep, respectable. And and just to comment on it, I, I love Battleground. That's just there's so many good things about that film. I, I can't say enough about it. But just the, the way they talk and the jargon and you know the way that they interact is just so GI. And there's nothing else I think that really comes close to it. You know, we found a home in the army. There's just so many quotable lines and it's, it's so good. But awesome. Um, well, I'll go and then we'll end with you, Mike. Is, uh, you're you're the other Omaha expert, um, but uh, yeah, you know, just agreeing with everybody's points. You know, it is a product of its time. It is so encompassing. It tries to tell so much in you know such a short period of time that you know I think they almost jump around too much. Like the arc of this film is like big event and then fourteen storylines and then big event and then fourteen storylines and then you know and I really feel like they could have cut out some of those things and still told the same story. It's great to have French commandos and war correspondents and, and everything, but I feel like some of that is missed in that. And they also had to, you know, do more telling than showing, which is, you know, cheap filmmaking, but it's just what it was. That being said, it is a great primer, you know, in just getting to know the history and the time, you know, that, that this took place in. Again, we can nitpick it for everything. I mean, uh, French Jeeps, um, fake M42s, EM shirts are wrong, the Lancasters in lieu of C-47s, the bands on their helmets, I, I mean, you know, the, long uh, parachutes. The, the, we, we the, could, the Chinese stall helms. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> we could really get into it. But, you know, that doesn't detract from the fact that it's trying to tell a story about one day during one war and, you know, what happened on it. Um, so encompassing everything like that, I give it an 8 out of 10. You know, it is a product of its time, but it's just a good primer, you know. If if you're going to talk about D-Day or Omaha or anything, you're eventually going to come into terms of this film or, or run into this movie, and you're going to watch it. You know, like, Nate, you made it into your 30s before you watched it, you know. Yeah. You were a late victim. Some people see it early. So <laughs> it, it's just interesting. You're going to run into this film eventually. Mm -hmm. um, and, Michael, you have the talking pillow. Uh, did you give it a rating? Oh, so yeah, 8 out of 10. 8 out of 10. It just... Uh, yeah yeah you know watch it um so yeah it is i don't consider it one of my favorite war movies it is it is something in terms of like you know contemporary watching for anybody i guess it is an academic experience you know it is interesting to see the very first like real you know cinematic adaptation of d-day um uh I, it's it's very interesting to study in uh, in terms of that. It's very interesting to study in terms of the history of war films in the United States. Um, but uh, 
even though even then like i i would say it you can tell that there was you know a lot of care put into a lot of it like i say the the, the german is all very you know actual actual german the french is actual french they got actual german and french actors and such and um the fact that they wanted to encompass all of this stuff and do it correctly as best as they could is you know it deserves it deserves a you know its place in history as a big you know big epic war film so um i uh i would say it it does it it it's the only uh d-day movie i've seen that uh depicts actual historical people uh like on omaha beach and stuff like that like saving private ryan the big red one those are all fictional people this actually does cover someone who is real you know norman coda um so uh for that and it's definitely not the worst uh depiction of the atlantic wall or you know omaha beach i've seen or any d-day beach i think the worst i've ever seen is probably my way um oh but, god uh, <laughs> we don't talk about that movie oh long-haired steve, german on the beach no steve are you aware of that movie oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's sort of omaha like the, 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 the disneyland version of omaha beach yeah it's it's like the maginot line or something yeah <laughs> it's like it all happened at two o'clock in the afternoon on a sunny day right yeah beach. and it's just the most insane shit ever and it's apparently utah beach which was very undermanned in real life um but uh uh so yeah it's definitely not the worst i've seen in terms of you know putting that that thing onto film so i would probably give it a seven seven out of ten um i'm never bored watching it i um and i've seen it a bunch of times so yeah i can i can watch this anytime nice mm -hmm. so putting all the scores into the computer that will tell us if the issue is still in doubt we arrive at a 7.5 so a good you know high-end score um yeah. it's worth a watch you're gonna watch this and you're gonna pick something out you like and you know it might lead you in a cool direction um that you learn more stuff about so yeah well steve thank you so much for your time i learned so much and i bet half the viewers that are listening to this or listeners they have your books in their library and they have no idea you know so it's been such a pleasure and uh if you want to just mention the, the book you're coming out of point to hawk it's uh smashing hitler's guns i believe yeah it came out this past may called uh smashing mm -hmm. hitler's guns mm -hmm. and it comes from osprey mm -hmm. so it's widely available you know Certainly off Amazon um, and probably some bookstores. Nice. Yeah. yeah. For people that like book and mortar or brick and mortar still or Amazon, you know, it, you guys heard it here. He knows his stuff and just uh, fascinating history. So, again, thanks for joining us and uh, we'll see everybody next week. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to leave a rating. Otherwise, Mel Gibson won't stop screaming. If you like this content, make sure to check out our Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram pages. If you want to directly support our work, make sure to check out our Patreon. All these links are in the description below. Until the next time, scuttlebutt out. <laughs>